The meeting will come to order. Welcome to the February 15, 2023 meeting of the Budget and Finance Committee. I am Supervisor Connie Chan, Chair of the Committee. I'm joined by Vice Chair Supervisor Rafael Mendelman and Member Supervisors Asha Safayi. Our clerk is Brent Halipa. I would like to thank Michael Baltazar uh, from SFGTV for broadcasting this meeting. Um, Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements? Thank you, Madam Chair. Just a friendly reminder for those in attendance to make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices so as not to interrupt our proceedings here in the chamber. Uh, the Board of Supervisors and its committees are convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. The Board recognizes that equitable public access is essential and will be taking public comment as follows. First, public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Uh, those attending in-person will be allowed to speak first and then we will take those waiting on the telephone line. For those watching either channels 26, 28, 78, or 99, and sfgovtv.org, the public comment call-in number is streaming across the screen. That number is 415-655-0001. Again, that's 415-655-0001. Then enter the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then pound and pound again. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you'll be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak right along those curtains, and those on the telephone should dial star three to also be added to the speaker line. If you're on your telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices you may be using, and each speaker will be allowed up to two minutes to speak unless otherwise stated. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Uh, following ways. Email them to myself, the Budget and Finance Committee Clerk, at brent.jalipa at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall. That's 1, Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place. Room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. And finally, with the observance of President's Day next week, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors' agenda of February 28th, unless otherwise stated. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Uh, before we call item number one, I would like to just uh, remind everyone that we have the budget and legislative analyst reports for items today, total 10 items, 1, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 11, 14, and 15. And so for those items, we will have the department's presentation first, followed by the budget and legis legislative analyst. Then we will take questions and public comment. So Mr. Clerk, please call item number one. I guess item number one is an ordinance deappropriating uh, 250000 from the general city responsibility and reappropriating 170000 to the Human Rights Commission for District 10 safety plan implementation, youth activities such as sports, mentoring, college exploration, and on-site school support to District 10 schools, and 80000 to the Department of Children, Youth, and Their Families for District 10 sports programming for basketball and football in fiscal year 2022-2023. Members of the public are joining us remotely and wish to comment on, the, on this ordinance. Please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Uh, once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand, and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that will be your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Uh, today we have a presentation by Tracy Gallardo um, from District 10, Supervisor Shaman Walton's office for this item. 
Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Tracy Gallardo representing the District 10 Office for Supervisor Walton. This $250,000 ordinance deappropriates $250,000 from the general fund and appropriates $170,000 to Human Rights Commission for District 10 Safety Plan and $80,000 to the Department of Children, Youth, and Families. This money was originally set aside for participatory budget. The allocation of these funds takes the following input into the allocation of these funds. District 10 currently holds in-person town halls twice a year. During the pandemic, of course, they were virtual. The dates for 2022 were April 6th, April 20th, with a final input session on June 13th. In addition to these budget meetings, we host public safety meetings twice a year. As a result of these meetings, our office released a safety plan that incorporated all of the community concerns as well as meetings with various department heads. We continue to meet with departments to hear from them their plan to address and interrupt violence in District 10. These meetings have taken place this year in January and will happen again in March. We are fully invested in strategies that will support our communities to prevent violence. We believe that this investment will directly address the violence prevention strategies outlined in the District 10 safety plan. Thank you. Thank you. And we have the BLA report. Thanks, Chair Chair Nick Menard from the Budget Legislative Analyst Office. This item uh, reappropriates $250,000 set aside in this year's budget for District 10 projects um, to the Human Rights Commission and DCYF for new recommend approval. Thank you. Any questions? Seeing none. And uh, Mr. Clark, please go to public comment. Thank you, Madam Chair. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item uh, that are joining us today should line up to speak now. For those listening remotely, please call 415. 655-0001 with the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. And if you're already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. And that'll, that'll be your signal to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber. And Madam Chair, we have no speakers in the queue. Thank you, seeing no public comment. Public comment is close. Uh, colleagues, I would like to make the motion to move this to full board with positive recommendation. Please call the roll. On that motion to forward this resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Thank you. And uh, Mr. Clerk, can you please call item number two? Uh, yes, item number two is a resolution authorizing agents to act on behalf of the city and county for all matters pertaining to state and federal disaster and emergency assistance uh, funding and to provide the assurances and agreements required by the governor's office of emergency services. Members of the public are joining us remotely and wish to comment. Please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403 and press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. Uh, a prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand, and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that is your signal to start your public comment. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Today we have a presentation by Mark McLean, Deputy Director of Administrative Services from the Controller's Office. Thank you for being with us today. The floor is yours. Thank you, and good morning again. Mark McLean from the Controller's Office. And what this uh, resolution is uh, concerning is, again, the Cal OES, the California Office of um, emergency services 
requires every three years that the county designate its uh, agents that are authorized to both uh, ask for and receive emergency funding. Um, so this proposed resolution has absolutely no financial or budgetary impact. Again, it's just identifying the positions in the city that can um, engage in, on behalf of the city with Cal OES in matters that deal with emergency funding and public assistance. Uh, the proposed resolution is a universal resolution that will be effective for all disasters over the next three years. It's not limited to a specific incident. Um, the three positions that are designated are the executive director of DEM, the controller and the deputy controller. And uh, just for historical context, this exact same resolution has been previously passed unanimously by the full board uh, back in 2013, 2016, and 2019, so every three years. And that's it, happy to answer any questions. Thank you. I don't see us have any question. We appreciate all the work that you're doing. It's very critical uh, for us to really recover. And uh, I think that was amazing, especially during COVID, to see the uh, reimbursement rate uh, exceeding expectations that really help us through. So we appreciate all the work that uh, you, you and your team been doing. Thank you so much. Uh, Mr. Clerk, please go to public comment. Yes, members of the public who wish to speak. Uh, and are joining us in person should line up now. How for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Uh, once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. Uh, please, and please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and that'll be your signal to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber. And Madam Chair, we have no speakers in the queue. Thank you. Seeing no more public comments, public comment is now closed. Colleagues, I would like to move this item to full board with positive recommendation. Mr. Clerk, please call the roll. Uh, yes, on that motion to forward this resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation. Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Mr. Clerk, please call item number three. Yes, item number three is a resolution reauthorizing the issuance of tax-exempt lease revenue commercial paper certificates of participation series one and series two and taxable uh, lease revenue commercial paper certificates in uh, of participation series 1t and series 2t in an aggregate principal amount not to exceed uh, 150 million to finance the acquisition, construction, and rehabilitation of capital improvements and capital equipment approved by the Board of Supervisors and the Mayor, authorizing the delivery of alter alternate credit facility in the principal amount of uh, 163.5 million and approving and authorizing the execution of a second supplement to trust agreement, a second amendment to the site lease, a second amendment to sublease, a revolving credit agreement, a, free, a fee agreement, uh, an offering memorandum and certain other related financing documents and authorizing other related actions as defined. Members of the public are joining us remotely and wish to comment on this resolution. Please call 415-655-0003 with the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A prompt will indicate that you raised your hand, and when the system indicates you haven't unmuted, that will be your signal to be in your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Today we actually have, I think, Visha uh, Trevendi, from, a financial analyst from the Controller's Office of Public Finance. Thank you. 
Uh, good morning. Thank you, Chair Chan and members of the committee for uh, considering this resolution. Uh, this is a resolution to uh, reauthorize the city's commercial paper program and replace one of the credit facilities that support the program. Uh, just to give you some background, commercial paper is a short-term or interim financing tool that we use to fund capital projects, often before taking it out with long-term debt. Uh, it, it allows the city to uh, fund these capital programs uh, efficiently and, and more cost-effectively than um, just issuing long-term debt uh, at the outset. So uh, we currently have a $250 million commercial paper program. Uh, last year, the board approved the replacement of uh, one of the series of commercial paper in the amount of $100 million with a new credit agreement. Uh, now we, the other two series are expiring. The, the credit agreements are expiring in May of this year, and so we're replacing those with a new credit agreement to extend the, the program further. Uh, the, the current agreements are with U.S. Bank and State Street and $75 million each, and we're replacing it with a single agreement with uh, Wells Fargo Bank for $150 million. For the, so it's the same total amount of the, of the program that uh, we've been maintaining for the last several years. Uh, we did a competitive request for proposals. We received six responses, and uh, Wells Fargo was selected as a top-scoring firm um, through that process. The, uh, the fee rate that we're going to be receiving uh, is actually to some savings over the current existing two agreements, uh, the 38 and 40 basis points, and the new agreement will be 25 basis points, so that'll create some annual savings for the program. Um, so really, uh, the, it's a straightforward replacement of the credit facility with a new revolving credit agreement, and so we, uh, I'm happy to take any questions if you have any um, but uh, we're just we're respectfully requesting that you approve the, the resolution to, to approve it. Thank you. Item three, as noted by the department, um, is a resolution uh, reapproving $150 million of the city's commercial paper program um, and, and approving related uh, documents for the credit facility. We show the uh, projects that are drawn on the program on page eight of our report. And we also note that the city will incur a one-time cost of approximately $554,000 um, to establish this new line of credit um, and incur ongoing costs of approximately $921,000 per year um, for the three-year duration of these agreements. We do recommend approval. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Clerk, I see no comments from my colleagues. Let's go to public comment. Uh, yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this resolution and are joining us in person should line up now. Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. If you're already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted, and that'll be your signal to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber. And Madam Chair, we have no... Uh, speakers in the queue. Thank you. Uh, seeing no public comment, public comment is now closed. And seeing no other questions, I'll probably circle back, not with you, but separately with the departments, really about the multiple different projects about resilient and emergency system for the capital planning and critical repair. So we'll, we'll um, move this to the full board with positive recommendation Mr. Clerk, please call the roll. On that motion to forward this resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. And this motion passes. 
And uh, Mr. Clark, please call item four through eight. Yes, items four through eight are resolutions approving amendments uh, to the following grant agreements between the city and county and respective nonprofits for the uh, administration of the following projects. Item number four approves the second amendment to the agreement with Meals on Wheels of San Francisco for the home delivered meal nutrition services to older adults program to increase the grant amount by approximately 4.1 million for a total not to exceed amount of approximately 35.6 million. Item number five approves an amendment to the agreement with Project Open Hand for the congregate nutrition services for adult, older adults program to increase the grant amount by approximately 2.2 million for a total not to exceed amount of approximately 11.7 million. Item number seven approves the second amendment to the agreement of, uh, with self-help for the elderly for the congregate nutrition services for older adults program to increase the grant amount by approximately 1.2 million for a total not to exceed amount of approximately 11.8 million. Item number eight approves the second amendment to the agreement with Glide Foundation for the free meals program to increase the grant amount by 4.1 million for a total not to exceed amount of approximately 12 million. All of the aforementioned effective upon approval of their respective resolutions with no change to the grant periods of July 1st, 2021 through June 30th, 2025. But item number six approves an amendment to the agreement with San Francisco Marin Food Bank for the citywide grocery access program to increase the grant amount by approximately 4.9 million for a total not to exceed amount of approximately 11.2 million and to extend the grant period from January 31st, 2023 for a total uh, total period of July 1st, 2022 through June 30th, 2023, also effective upon approval. Um, members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment on these resolutions, please call 415-655-0001, enter the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pad twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand, and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that will be your cue to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. So I think for um, item four, five, seven, we have presentation by Tiffany Kearney, who is the program analyst and lead nutritionist from the Human Services Agency. And then uh, for items six and eight together, we will hear from Cindy Lin um, and the citywide food access manager, uh, also from Human Services Agency. So let's take that in that order by presentation. And then we do actually have one item that actually has the BLA report. Then we can maybe ask the questions all together. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, good morning, supervisors. Uh, my name is Tiffany Kearney. I am the lead nutritionist for the Department of Disability and Aging Services, also known as DOS. We are asking the board to approve amendments to three grant agreements. Each support prepared meals for older adults age 60 plus. One is with Meals on Wheels, the second is with Project Open Hand, and the third is with Self-Help for the Elderly. Each of these community organizations have long-standing histories of providing quality nutrition support to San Francisco residents and are leaders in addressing food insecurity. Um, I would like to provide some general information about their services as a whole and then uh, speak specifically about each of the modifications. And it sounds like you want to take all questions at the very end, is that correct? correct. Okay, wonderful, thank you. 
Um, Meals on Wheels, Project Open Hand, and Self-Help for the Elderly are among our network of partners that provide nutrition services directed at mitigating food insecurity and improving the health and wellness of older adults and people with disabilities living in our community. The pandemic over the last few years has underscored how critical community nutrition programming is for vulnerable populations who are at higher risk for food insecurity, like those served by our network partners. We know that 45% of the consumers who accessed at least one of our DOS-funded nutrition programs last year were screened as food insecure. We also know that 97% of our nutrition clients surveyed last year reported feeling less worried about having enough food to eat because they participated in a program, program highlighting the impact and difference our services make. DOS meal grants have compliance and quality assurance requirements. These requirements are essential in ensuring the health and safety of our clients. They promote a high level of performance by our partners. They support positive outcomes, and they help meet the needs of our clients more completely. They also ensure that state um, that services meet federal, state, and local standards. These requirements include such things as in-home assessments, nutrition risk screenings, nutrition education, nutrition counseling, and referrals. They also include food safety and sanitation monitoring, which is essential when providing meals for at-risk populations. We monitor all DOS-funded nutrition programs annually, Additionally, our meal partners submit monthly and quarterly reports to help ensure requirements are met and standards are maintained. It also allows for timely technical assistance should it be needed. Meals on Wheels, Project Open Hand, and Self-Help for the Elderly are consistently in compliance and continually meet outcome objectives. All three are on track to meet or exceed service deliverables this year. So the first amendment, uh, with uh, the first amendment we are requesting approval on is with Meals on Wheels for home delivered nutrition services. Meals on Wheels is one of eight community partners that has a grant with DOS to provide this service. They are our largest provider of home delivered meals. They are currently contracted to serve over 3,200 consumers and provide approximately 1.5 million meals annually. Meals on Wheels serves clients in every district and provides at least two meals a day, seven days a week. Their menu offers a variety of cuisines with broad appeal to satisfy the diverse population of clients they serve. Their meals are wholesome and meet current dietary guidelines. Meals on Wheels also offers diabetic, low sodium, and modified texture meal for individuals who need those. Healthy home-delivered meals is an essential and proven strategy to decrease the risk of food insecurity among our consumers who need meal support to their homes so that they may live independently, safely, and well-nourished in the community. The modification to Meals on, Gra meals on Wheels grant includes the following. The city's cost of doing business increases, funding for approximately 42,000 more meals this year to meet current demand, an additional 21 cent rate increase per meal this year to help offset the rise in food and fuel cost. 
And lastly, it includes infrastructure funding in the amount of $253,000 from the California Department of Aging to support three electric vans and a commercial meal label printer. So that is Meals on Wheels, and I'm gonna move on to the next one. <laughs> um, so for Project Open Hand, uh, this one is for uh, congregate meals. Project Open Hand is one of 10 DOS-funded organizations that provides congregate nutrition services. They have 10 communal dining sites across eight districts. They offer lunch service at all their sites, and at two of them, they offer a breakfast service. Their meals are an eclectic mix of cuisine that appeal to the diverse populations of the clients they serve. Their meals are also healthy and meet the latest dietary guidelines. Currently, meals are, or currently Project Open Hand is providing meals to go, as well as on-site dining for those who want to connect with peers and are ready to engage in wellness activities in person and at community sites. Project Open Hand is contracted to serve over 4,000 clients in approximately 52,000 breakfast and 200,000 lunch meals annually. The grant modification will add funding to support 86,488 more lunch meals allocated between this fiscal year and the fiscal and fiscal years 24 and 25. These meals are needed to meet the current demand this, this year and projected service levels in fiscal year 24 and 25. The modification also includes the city's cost of doing business increase and funding and infrastructure funding in the amount of $86,000 or $88,678 from the California Department of Aging for equipment purchases to, equipment purchases to support their food service operation. And last but not least is um, self-help for the elderly, also for their congregate nutrition services program. They are one of six DOS nutrition partners who provide culturally responsive nutrition support offering Chinese cuisine meals daily. Self-help has nine communal dining uh, sites located in se seven districts and are working uh, to open another dining site in District 4 this fall. They provide a lunch service at all of their sites, and at three of those sites, they also provide dinner service. Self-help has been offering clients the option of on-site dining and to-go meals. They are also in the process of engaging with their clients to determine the ongoing need for to-go meals. At present, self-help is contracted to serve 5,500 consumers and provide approximately 225,000 meals annually. The grant modification will add funding to support 76,450 more meals, also allocated between this year and the next two. These additional meals are needed to meet current demand this year and projected service levels in 24 and 25. Like the rest of them, the modification includes a cost of doing business increase and infrastructure funding in the amount of $11,600 um, from the California Department of Aging to support purchase equipment needed at two of their meal sites. 
your approval of um, their amendment as well as um, Meals on Wheels and Project Open Hand will allow us um, in partnership with our providers to continue to provide culturally responsive nutrition support for older adults and adults with disability in the community. Thank you very much. And um, I think I pass it over to uh, Cindy Lynn. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Ms. Kearney. Good morning, supervisors. My name is Cindy Lin. I am the Citywide Food Access Manager at HSA. Um, today, I'm here to present two items, um, starting with the modification request for our grant with the San Francisco Marin Food Bank um, under our Citywide Grocery Access Grant. Um, this really supports the pop-up pantries that you might see throughout the city. This modification or amendment will allow this program to continue until June 30th, 2023. Our current term um, started July 1st of 22 and um, was only slated to go into January 31st of 23. Um, again, this extension allows us to go till the end of the fiscal year. Um, we are proposing an additional amount of $4,938,000 $828 um, with a new not to exceed of 11 million $228,328. Um, I'd like to share a couple of highlights from the pop-up pantry program. Um, first, all of these sites were started in the beginning of the pandemic in order to give food to community members. Um, if you all recall, it was quite a hectic time in the beginning of the pandemic to get food, um, especially challenging for those who might be limited with funds or um, have disabilities um, or just really couldn't stand in line for health reasons. So right now we still have 20 sites of these pop-up pantries going, including one drive-through site. Um, from July of 2022 till December of 2022, um, over 435,000 bags of groceries have been distributed. That's an average of 72,000 bags a month, um, and that accumulates to about almost 70,000 individuals served. Um, we are also happy to report that this is a 21% increase in food support between last fiscal year and this fiscal year so far. Um, also like to share where these pop-up pantries are. If you like to see in the map, we've put some pins on the current locations and also a distribution of the pop-up sites by district. You can see that uh, we tried to work with the food bank to spread them out throughout the city for ease of access. Here's a quick snippet of some client demographics. Um, you can see that a very diverse array of San Franciscans are served here, um, a majority uh, identifying as API. Every year, the food bank conducts a service and uh, satisfaction survey with their clients. Here are some of the results of their last year's results um, that also included asking customers about the pop-up pantries. 97% of the respondents agreed that they like the food they get from the program. 98% of the respondents agreed that the volunteers and staff provide really good service. And 90% agreed with this statement. In my culture, we eat the food that is offered in the program. 71% of the respondents said that their households were still, um, had experienced a financial loss due the, to the pandemic, and that really lets us know how essential these programs continue to be. 
um, I will just move on to the Glide item. Um, so I bring before you a modification request for Glide's free meals program. Um, this is quite a historical program if you know San Francisco. Um, this modification request um, will add an additional $4,187,000 um, to the grant with a new not to exceed amount of $12,055,380. Um, this modification or amendment will support a more true accurate cost of the meals. Um, it also factors in inflation, which hits food costs particularly harsh in the last couple of years, and we predict it will continue to um, do so. And it allows us to reimburse Glide at a higher rate. So a little bit of background information on the Daily Free Meals Program. Um, it is open to everybody in the neighborhood, but anybody who um, just shows up. There are no people are turned away. Um, there are no eligibility requirements, no exceptions, no exclusions. Um, this program began in 1969 as a potluck dinner for 50 people, um, but now Glide on average serves about 1,600 meals. Um, that's inclusive of breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, they are only closed one day of the year, being New Year's Day, um, so they are very accessible to the community. Again, here are some client demographics. Um, you can kind of see that they serve a pretty wide range of clients. And um, like I said, because no one's turned away, these can shift from year to year, but this is the uh, most recent survey that they did with their clients. Again, I'd like to share some of their survey responses. Um, Glide does try to survey their clients um, regularly, but it's particularly challenging with Glide because, again, um, no one is ex excluded and not everybody comes every day. And um, so here are some of the responses from their last survey. 100% um, of the respondents rated the quality of the meal as excellent or good. Um, I am told that in particular, fried chicken Thursdays are amazing. Um, 98% of the respondents felt less worried about getting enough food to meet their needs because of the program, and 98% of the respondents report an increased consumption of fruits, vegetables, and or whole grains because of the meals they access here. And that's the end of my presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Lin. Thank you, Chair Chen. So items four through eight, as noted, um, approve amendments to existing agreements with Meals on Wheels, Project Open Hands, Self-Help for the Elderly, Glide, and the San Francisco Marin Food Bank all to do various forms of nutrition assistance as just outlined by the department. You know, when we look at grant agreements, we look at the reasonableness of the budgets within the agreements and the not to exceed amounts and the resolutions. We also look at the performance of the contractors and their financial condition. And I can tell you today that as of today, we didn't see any red flags across um, any of those areas. We did have a recommendation on the Glide resolution um, to request a report back to the board about their status as a nonprofit. Um, we did learn from the department yesterday that their status is now, um, has been accepted by the California Attorney General's office. So I'm withdrawing that recommendation. We recommend approval of the GLIDE resolution on file. We did have a clarifying 
recommendation on item six. Six. Uh, yes, thank you. Item six to clarify that the um, approval of the amendment is retroactive. I also just want to point out that when we looked at the performance, what we noted is that the providers are delivering more meals than they're actually contracted for. And so even with these increases that are proposed by the amendments, would still, if, they were, if the providers remain on budget, it will result in a service cut to the nutrition assistance programs. So to put some numbers on it, if you look at the Meals on Wheels, Project Open Hand, Self-Help for the Elderly, and Glide Meals Delivered, um, in 2022, there were 2.8 million meals. In this fiscal year, with these amendments, that would decrease to 2.45 million. And then in the out year, would decrease a little bit to 2.38. Um, and then with the Marin Food Bank item, they're budgeted to deliver 40,000 groceries a month. They've actually been delivering over 70,000. So they will either have to deliver fewer groceries or do fundraising. Um, which you know is not is not included in the budget that we've seen, um, so I do want to note that for the board as you consider these items. Thank you. Thank you. I I I think the comment that I want to make, and it's generally it just in general for this body, both at contract amendment as well as grant amendment, with the sort of this with the same period of the contract and same periods of the grant contract that you're coming back for increase uh, a grant increase in this case is concerning always because you know that also means no matter what the program is you're you're overspending and and to you're exceeding your spending uh, a dollar amount but i think in this case it's very a challenging time both because the pandemic and the needs has significantly increased at least from for the very least anecdotally that as I'm learning. Um, and I think that cost of doing business, food cost has significantly increased due to inflation. I think those are the harsh reality that um, we have to face. Um, I think additional alarming you know, situation for me when, when we think about these grants is the fact that like CalFresh is coming, you know, the, the emergency allotments is coming to an end. And with that, uh, it, is, it means that at least from what we learned from Director Trent Rohr and from your memo telling us is that CalFresh will, households that's been using, having CalFresh could lose anywhere between $95 and $517 per month. That's huge, I think. Um, so does that actually mean that these programs then will see also increase, uh, more increase, if, if some of these households losing CalFresh benefits uh, so significantly. Um, with that said though, uh, I for one am, am definitely supportive of today's um, grant increase amount and making sure that we continue to deliver these services, these critical services. Um, and I really am thankful for all the work that you and our partners um, have been doing during pandemic. Um, I think that this body should really think about ways to um, have these conversation um, and have these consideration as we move forward with budget conversation and thinking about how we really um, utilize our resources and where do we put our money. And, and I, for one, think that this food security should be a priority for, for San Francisco. Vice Chair Mendelman. 
Thank you, Chair Chan. Um, and I share some of the some of the concerns that um, that you've raised. And the point that the BLA has raised that we're sort of this doesn't really work over time. Um, that we're you know the demands have grown so much during the pandemic. Lots of folks are out there doing great work, but we haven't. Uh, we are not contracting to continue the work at the same level. I guess the first thing I just want to see is what what is DOS and HSA's thinking about where we are? Because it looks like we're heading for a cliff. And then um, Chair Chan has pointed out, um, you know, there's this whole other thing going on with CalFresh, which seems like it's related and could exacerbate the need. So. Are we thinking about this? And what do we think is coming? And how are we thinking about trying to address this? Your name and title. Good morning, Susie Smith. I'm Deputy Director for Policy Planning and Public Affairs for HSA. So half of the food bank and Glide's budget is actually privately fundraised. And so it's not a budget cut. It's just that the city support is only a portion of the total budget. Um, inflation, obviously, cost of doing business has increased, and particularly with food costs. So that does impact over time the amount of food that the providers can can provide. But it's not a drastic. It's not a fifty fifty thousand to eighty thousand cut. It's just that the full budget reflects both the city money and the private money. So we we aren't necessarily anticipating. What's that? We're not necessarily anticipating that. Funding them at less than what they're currently delivering means that they're going to have to reduce. No, I mean there will be again. Inflation means the same dollar amount doesn't go quite as far, but half the budgets are private. So that's you know they do a really good job at fundraising, and people have been very interested in donating to this cause over the last couple of years. And then maybe to steal Chair Chan's to turn Chair, Chair Chan's concern into a question. What is the interplay between the Cal the CalFresh reductions and what's going and what these providers are doing? We are tracking um, through data what the current level of service demand is, what wait lists are before and after this policy change. And so, you know, at the outset, we anticipate that there will be more demand um, among the food providers for the support. And we're going to just keep close track to understand from a data perspective how the policy change is affecting need in the community. Thank you. Thank you. Supervisor Safai. Thank you. So I have a few questions. Um, again, I think we saw during uh, COVID and the increase in demand and, and maybe in many ways uncovering uh, a level of food insecurity that we might not have known existed or was exacerbated by uh, COVID. And we've done a few things. Uh, we've, one of the things we do is pass legislation to promote a food empowerment market. I understand that that's making its way to getting off the ground in Bayview. There's a lot of people that just don't, and, and we heard this over and over again, that just don't feel comfortable standing and, and, and participating in, in standing in line outside they don't want people to know that they're experiencing that level of food insecurity. So that's an important thing that we've tried to push. I guess I would ask uh, the folks here today, I mean, when, when you give us the client demographics just for the food pop-ups, does that, does that demographic information, does that correlate 
with the level of poverty that we see and the demand for food insecurity because it doesn't seem to reflect um, what, what we have seen out in the community. I mean, and I'm glad that there's significant demand, but I just don't know if that correlates with the level of poverty and demand that we're seeing out in the community. Um, thank you for your question, Supervisor Safai. Um, I'd like to clarify that the data I showed is just for the pop-up pantry, so the food bank would have a more complete um, data set that includes their pre-COVID programming. Um, so what I showed was just a snippet, so I don't feel like well, it's what a little, I shared... It's a little bit misleading because when it says client demographics, it says client demographics and it gives us... Uh, demographics that they're presenting to us right but so i'm only just, presenting one, one of their small, programs I, I get it so it would be helpful to have more clear information sure we can follow up with that and we'll work with the food bank and then and then another thing i just wanted to say for the record one of the things that we've heard from the latino task force and we work with them is that there's a greater demand and we put a small piece of that in the budget last year greater demand for uh, prepaid cards that can then support local businesses. So that individuals that have the demand and the need for food insecurity, they can go and these cards are attached and, and related to existing small businesses in their community. So again, th this is something that they can self-motivate, go on their own, support a local business, which we wanna do with our local economy, uh, versus having to go and standing and getting a, a box of food and also keeping their uh, their identity or their situation a little bit more private. So is that something that you all are thinking about expanding more of? Uh, yes, it is a strategy that we are considering expanding. Um, we currently support a very similar model through our partnership with EDSF, which is housed at UCSF, and that's a very similar model where um, participants essentially receive vouchers and they go spend it at neighborhood stores. Um, and so that's a really popular program that we support that has a, a constant waiting list. So it is something that we're trying to put more resources into once we know our resources for next year. I guess what I would say is that when I see that, you know, for instance, in terms of delivering groceries, one of the groups is contracted for 40,000 groceries delivered, but they're delivering 70,000. Is that a personal choice? Is that a, an independent choice that they're making? And then are you all funding that beyond some of these other programs and ideas that are out there? Or are they coming back and asking us for more money because they've, they've exceeded their contract and now we're increasing that contract? Um, so for the 40,000 that we put in our minimum for Appendix A or their deliverables, um, that's what we put out to bid. Uh, the food bank was the only uh, bidder for that RFP, and the food bank can essentially provide their program at lower costs. So they are able to go beyond way, way beyond 40,000 units. So that's why they're able to serve 70,000. No, that's great. I guess what I'm asking is, are we obligated to pay beyond what we're contracted? And no. Okay. Yeah. Because we are doing a contract amendment already. Is that correct? I mean, correct. Um, we cover... I think that's the chair Chan's point that they're coming back and asking for a contract amendment beyond what was originally contracted, or is it just the life of their contract and now you're extending it? Uh, for the food bank one in particular, that one's really um, an extension at the same per month amount. Um, originally, we were only able to enter into a six-month contract with them, um, and then we received more resources, and that's why we've brought that 
item here today to ask for the essentially extension and more, more dollars to support the program. And again, I'd like to share that our resources for that grant covers about 56% of the cost of the pop-ups, while the food bank privately fundraises for the rest of it. That's great. I, I mean, I, I, just for the record, I, I'm very supportive of all of these programs. I think they're extremely essential. I'm just trying to get a little more data because it, some of this is not making sense to me. The other thing, too, is this, is this an exhausted list of the pantries? Because it says there's only three in my district, but I can count maybe another five that actually pop up. Um, I believe those are not considered pop-up pantries um, if they're run by the food bank. So before the pandemic, the food bank had pre-existing pantries that they partnered with um, local organizations to provide. Um, and this grant specifically is for the larger size pop-ups. Um, you might also be thinking about other uh, food distribution sites that we support in your district that are unrelated to the food bank. I'm not. I Maybe can I can defer I can this question to I, the food bank. Because I see the food bank truck show up. So it's, it's just, that's why I was asking, is this an exhausted list? Because this is not extensive. Um, I'm happy to defer this question to our food bank representatives. They might know a little bit more about sure. the specific locations. That'd be great. Um, maybe Sean or Tannis, would you like to take this one? Thank you, and please state your name and title. Uh, good morning, Supervisors. Uh, Sean Brooks, uh, Chief Program Officer at the S San Francisco Marin Food Bank. Um, yes, Supervisor Safai, we have uh, quite a number of food pantries across the county. So we support 220 uh, food pantries in San Francisco that provide weekly groceries to constituents across all of the districts. Um, of those, uh, 20 are pop-up pantries that, that, that are currently being funded at 56% by the county. So the other pantries are supported by uh, the food bank and, and private support uh, and other resources. Got it. Okay, so this is specifically, so what's the difference between the pop-up and, and a food pantry? Um, we've been supporting food pantries for years, and uh, during the pandemic, many food pantries closed, but not all. Uh, and so we stood up these uh, emergency programs initially to replace some of the pantries that had closed and uh, faced an overwhelming demand, as you saw, with the long lines. Uh, and so we have been supporting those programs. We've obviously normalized them in many ways and gotten rid of lines. And so now people have times where they can just show up and get food right away. Uh, so kind of avoiding some of the concerns that you, you talked about in terms of waiting in long lines. Uh, so you won't see those, those same lines um, that you would have seen during the pandemic. Uh, but these programs offer similar amounts of food to the other pantries that you're seeing in your neighborhood, um, you know, featuring fresh produce and, and protein and grain. Okay. All right. I guess we can follow up some more when we have further questions. Happy to answer Thanks questions. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Safayi. I really appreciate all the questions. And as you could tell, we, I think this body really care about um, food security. I think um, facing budget deficits, facing the actually significant needs all across the city, I think ultimately the question that we will have in the coming months as we go into the budget conversation is how do we bridge the gap and meet those needs? Um, we understand we are, and we're grateful for all the partners that are here um, for their stepping up and raising funds on their own to meet that demands. But we do also understand that for however, however 
way that we're going to view this that we do see as part of our responsibility as city governments to actually work with the partners to bridge that gap. So look forward to seeing the briefing and, and conversations um, about how do we problem solve this uh, budget gap and, and funding gap. Um, Mr. Clark, please, uh, let's go to public comment. Thank you, Chair Chan. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item or, or these items and are joining us in person should line up now to speak uh, right along those curtains. Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403. Then press pound twice. Once connected, uh, press star three to enter the speaker line. And for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. And there will be a signal to begin your comments. Yes, go ahead and step up, and uh, once you start speaking, I'll start your time for two minutes. Great, thank you. Good morning, Chair and Committee members. My name is Jean Cooper, and I'm the Chief Impact and Strategy Officer at the Glide Foundation. I'd like to thank Mike Zog and Kathy Huang and Cindy Liu for presenting today and uh, for working with us on this, on this amendment, as well as the offices of Supervisor Ronan, Preston, and Safai. Thank you very much. And I'd also like to thank um, the hard work of the providers, other providers here today that are helping us combat food insecurity in San Francisco. We appreciate the modification to the existing contract for the provision of our daily free meals program and we, we respectfully request the committee's approval. We operate our daily free meals, meals program in line with our belief in food for all, no exceptions and no exclusions. The program has no eligibility requirements, providing these three nutritious meals a day, 364 days a year. In partnership with the city, we have done this for decades. The need to prioritize an equitable nutrition safety net is dire in San Francisco. In February, CalFresh recipients, including more than 70,000 households in San Francisco, will receive their last emergency allotment, which has provided a critical boost to their benefits throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. We're facing a massive collapse in benefits and buying power, and it is going to drastically impact our clients and our community members. Statewide, this amounts to a loss of about 500 million in benefits per month, and in San Francisco, about 11.7 million. Some people will go from receiving a $281 a month to just 23, all while food prices are at an all-time high. Our nutrition services assist our clients in gaining consistent and equitable access to nutritious meals, as well as linkage to supportive services. We're so grateful for your consideration today to these modifications, and which will enable us to more sustainably continue to combat hunger in San Francisco. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jean Cooper, for your testimony. Next speaker, please. Hello, my name is Tannis Crosby. I serve as Executive Director of San Francisco Marin Food Bank. I want to echo the sentiments of our colleague, and I want to thank you all for your support of these vital food security programs and your awareness of the extent to which our community members are hurting. I'd like to add some more context. First, there is a hunger cliff looming. In addition to the emergency allotments ending, there is a food cliff. The food bank, in addition to the private funding you heard of, secures over $90 million in donated food annually. Previously, that was significantly more from the USDA. In the pandemic, it was about 30 million pounds a year. Last year, it was 10. This year, it will be 7.5. We are experiencing pressure from all sides, and our participants are too. 
So there is less food available, it is 60% higher cost, and the demand continues to be at persistent levels. The specific pop-up program that you heard about serves 18,000 households weekly. The food bank serves 56,000 households weekly. Our pop-ups currently have a wait list of 2,200 people. With this amendment, contract funding will be extended until June 30th. There is currently no funding after that. There is a funding cliff. There will be greater need in the community. We so appreciate your support for this program. What lifted off as a crisis response is now an equity-centered, dignified, culturally responsive, trauma-informed, and participant program, centered program that is providing a vital service, and we greatly appreciate your support of this vital program in our community. Thank you. Thanks so much, Tanis Crosby. Uh, seeing no further speakers here in the chamber, Madam Chair, we have no speakers in the telephone queue. Thank you. Seeing no more public comment, public comment is now closed. Colleagues, I would like to send these items, items four through eight, to full board with recommendation. Mr. Clerk, please call the roll. Oh, actually, no. I need to make amendment for the retroactive. My apologies. I did that again. I would first like to make the amendment um, for item number, I believe, uh, for the item number six to amend uh, the item to indicate that it is retroactive and from the uh, grant period of January 31st to February 1st, 2023. With that amendment, Mr. Clark, please call the roll. On that motion to amend the resolution in item number six to clarify retroactivity and correcting the contract term to February 1st, 2023. Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. The motion has passes and the motion passes and let's move items four through eight including item six that has been amended to full board with recommendation mr clerk please call the roll on that motion to forward uh, the resolutions to the full board with the positive recommendation item six as amended uh vice chair mandelman mandelman aye member safai safai aye chair chan aye chan aye we have three ayes Thank you. The motion passes. And um, Mr. Clerk, I would like to call items 9 and 10 together. Yes, items number 9 and 10 are resolutions retroactively authorizing the Department of Public Health to accept and expand the following grant increases from the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute through Haluna Health for participation in a program entitled Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. Item number nine is in an amount of approximately 33.6 thousand for a total amount of approximately 133.5 thousand for the period of October 1st, 2020 through September 30th, 2021. And item number 10 is in an amount 
of approximately 34.6 thousand for a total amount of approximately 134.5 thousand for a period of October 1st, 2021 through September 2022. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment, please call 415-655-0001, enter the meeting ID of 2493-4460403, then press pound twice once connected. Uh, press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand, and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that will be your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Today we have verbal presentation by Albert Liu, uh, Clinical Research Director, Population Health Divisions of the Department of Public Health. See online? Yes, I'm here. There you go. Can you hear me? Great. Yes. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, good morning, Supervisors. Um, I'm Al Liu. I'm the Clinical Research Director at Bridge HIV um, within the San Francisco Department of Public Health, um, and I'll be presenting um, these two items. Uh, so both uh, grants are from the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, um, and this is um, funding a study. It's a comparative effectiveness study where we're looking at two different mobile health um, technologies to help support uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis use, um, PrEP use. Uh, PrEP is a medication that is highly effective for HIV prevention. However, we do see um, significant um, uh, drop-off in people staying on PrEP with about half to two-thirds of people um, discontinuing PrEP within six to 12 months of starting PrEP. Um, and so our study um, is uh, testing uh, text messaging intervention as well as a mobile app um, to see if we can help improve adherence um, and retention and care. Um, the study is focusing on cisgender and transgender um, sexual minority men as well as transgender women who have been highly impacted by HIV. Um, and we're also focusing on those who are newly starting this medication or those who are having um, trouble taking PrEP. Um, and we're rolling 300 participants into the study across three um, sexual health and public health clinics in San Francisco, Miami, and Washington, DC. Um, and we'll be looking at a number of um, patient outcomes. Um, this grant does have an advisory group, um, including patients, healthcare providers, HIV advocates, and activists, as well as um, local and state health departments and policy experts to help inform uh, the design and implementation of the study. Um, thank you for your consideration. Thank you. Um, do we have any questions? Seeing none, I understand that the retroactivity of these uh, partly due to trying to understand the $100,000 threshold for accept and expand grant um, and also trying to determine uh, compliance of the behested payment um, law and so I, I hope that it's all clarified now and um, and seeing no other comments and questions, Mr. Clerk, please go to public comment. Yes, members of the public who wish to speak on these two items and are joining us in person should line up now. For those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. Please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and there'll be a cue to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber. And Madam Chair, we have no speakers in the queue. Thank you, seeing no public comment. Oh, I, public comment is close, but I do see that Vice Chair Mandelman has questions. 
Uh, just a request to be added as a co-sponsor to 9 and 10. Thank you, Mr. Vice Chair. Thank you, and uh, I move these two items to full board with positive recommendation. Mr. Clerk, please call the roll. On that motion to forward the two resolutions to the full board with the positive recommendation, Vice Chair Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, I'm Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Mr. Clerk, can you please call item 11 and 12 together? Yes, items 11 and 12 are resolutions regarding the following for property located at 4200 Geary Boulevard. Item number 11 approves and authorizes the director of property on behalf of the mayor's office of housing and community development to acquire the real property from 4200 Geary Associates LP as the borrower for approximately 11 million under an agreement for purchase and sale, placing the property under the jurisdiction of MoCD for use in constructing affordable housing for San Franciscans, approving and authorizing the director of property and the director of MoCD to enter into a ground lease to, um, to lease the property back to the borrower for a term of 75 years and one 24-year option to extend at an annual base rent of 15000 in order to construct the 100% affordable 98-unit multifamily rental housing development affordable to low-income senior households including one manager unit and ancillary uh, commercial space, uh, approving and authorizing the amended and restated loan agreement in an amount not to exceed approximately $20.5 million for a minimum loan term of 57 years to finance the development and construction of the project, adopting findings declaring that the property is exempt surplus land pursuant to the California Surplus Lands Act, determining that the less than market rent payable under the ground lease will serve a public purpose by providing affordable housing for low-income households in need in accordance with the administrative code, adopting findings that the project and proposed transactions are consistent with the general plan and the eight priority policies of the planning code and authorizing the director of property and or the director of MOCD to make certain modifications to the purchase agreement ground lease and loan agreement as defined and take certain actions in furtherance of the resolution also as defined. Item number 12, authorizes the issuance and delivery of tax-exempt multifamily housing revenue bonds in an aggregate principal amount not to exceed $60 million for the purpose of providing financing for the construction of a 98-unit affordable multifamily re residential re rental housing project for seniors at the property, approving the form of and authorizing the execution of an indenture of trust, providing the terms and conditions of the bonds, approving the form of and executing uh, and authorizing the execution of a loan agreement, approving the form of an, author and of an authorizing the execution of a regulatory agreement and declaration of restrictive covenants, approving modifications, changes, and additions to the documents, authorizing the collection of certain fees, approving for purposes of the Internal Revenue Code of 1986 as amended, the issuance and sale of residential uh, mortgage revenue bonds by the city in an aggregate principal amount not to exceed $60 million to finance the acquisition and construction of the 4200 Geary Apartments, ratifying and approving any action heretofore taken in connection with the bonds and the project, granting general authority to city officials to take actions and execute any other documents necessary to implement this resolution and related matters as defined. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment on these items, please call 415-655-0001, enter the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. 
a prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand, and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, there will be your cue to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk, and uh, I'm a proud sponsor of this, these two items, and thank you so much for the may to Mayor and the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Developments for the partnership to really build the much-needed affordable housing, 100% affordable housing on this site. Uh, I also want to thank my predecessor, Supervisor Sandra Lee, who really was the champion and, and started this um, to get this going, and I'm only the benefactor beneficiary for to to her uh, work here um, and today we actually have Sheila Nicolopoulos uh, director of policy uh, and I believe Ophelia Wash as well and uh, who's the project manager and both from the mayor's office of housing and community development thank you thank you uh, good morning supervisors so Sheila Nicolopoulos director of policy for MOHCD last week the mayor's office of housing and community development brought two affordable housing developments to this committee and as I mentioned, we're finalizing funding for six new affordable housing projects this spring. Today, we're presenting the third project, which is an affordable housing project at 4200 Geary that will serve low-income and formerly homeless seniors. This is the first affordable senior housing project in the Richmond since 2011. It's an important step in meeting housing element goals of bringing affordable units to high-resource neighborhoods. We acknowledge the significant need for more housing like this that can provide safe, affordable homes for aging adults on fixed low incomes. And I want to highlight that MOHCD has been working with other city agencies in the past year to produce the Senior and Disabled Housing Needs Assessment. And in the coming year, we'll be working closely with a dedicated position at the Planning Department to implement recommendations in that needs assessment. The six projects that we're bringing to you this spring will produce more than 600 affordable units throughout the city and will count towards our RENA goals and our geographic equity goals in the housing element. All of these projects rely on significant leverage of local dollars to secure state funds. And my colleague, Ophelia Walsh, will walk you through the specifics of this project. Thank you. Good morning, Chair Chan, uh, Supervisor Safai and Mendelman. My name is Ophelia Walsh, Project Manager with MoCD. I'm here today to present items in 11 and 12 for the affordable housing development located at 4200 Geary. The purpose of the two resolutions presented today is to approve affordable housing financing for 4200 Geary to begin construction this April 2023. Item 11 provides approval for MoCD to acquire property located at 4200 Geary for $11,064,369 under a purchase and sale agreement, approval of the MoCD loan agreement with the sponsor for an up to amount of $20,537,592, and approval of a MoCD ground lease. Item 12 is authorizing bond issuance and delivery in the amount not to exceed 60 million. Next slide. 4200 Geary will be a new 98 unit, 100% affordable senior housing development located on the west side in District 1. In 2019, TNDC was selected as 4200 Geary's sponsor for MoCD's affordable housing notice of funding availability. The Citywide Affordable Loan Committee approved a $14 million pre-development and acquisition loan in January of 2021, which the Board of Supervisors reviewed and approved in April of 2021 under file number 210363. Upon approval of state financing, we're now returning to the Board to finalize this transaction with the final purchase and sale agreement, subsequent ground lease to the sponsor, and a permanent loan for approximately $20 million. Next slide. 
Um, the proposed project will include 98 residential units, uh, which includes 41 studios and 57 one-bedroom units. 4200 Geary will also include 20 local operating subsidy, LOSP units, 30 senior operating subsidy units serving between 15 and 25% most CDAMI, 12 veteran affairs supporting housing units, and the rest. 35 units will be for households with incomes up to 50% most CDAMI. The project will provide needed housing to a growing population of older adults and older adults that are homeless or at risk for homelessness, and will also allow seniors to age in place. In addition, the project will also create new construction in San Francisco's west side, which has not seen new affordable housing development since 2011. The project will be financed with um, the State of California's Housing and Community Development, HCD. After a successful application for Tier 2, California Housing Accelerator, in April of 2022, 4200 Geary was awarded $32,284,809 in accelerator funding this September 2022. $20 million in MHP funding, also from HCD, which was awarded in 2021, and $1 million from the Federal Home Loan Bank's Affordable Housing Program grants in 2022. 4200 Geary has, secu has secured a construction lender and is now ready to start construction this April of 2023 and expects a December of 2024 project completion date. Uh, thank you. This concludes my presentation. Um, we respectfully request for your approval of these two items presented before you today. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions. We also have um, our, a member from TNDC, Colleen Mom, and MoCD Director of Housing Development, Sarah Emerald, who are also available to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you, and we have the BLA report for item number 11 for the acquisition of the property. Thank you, Chair Chen. So item 11 is a resolution that approves a number of agreements related to an affordable housing project at 4200 Gary. Um, it approves a purchase and sale agreement for the city to acquire that property, a ground lease uh, to TNDC to operate the site as affordable housing, and also approves an amended and restated loan agreement um, so as noted in 2021, the board did approve a $14.5 million loan to TNDC that, and that included a $11 million to purchase the site and then $3.5 million for pre-development costs. Under the purchase and sale agreement here, the city would become the landowner of 4200 Gary um, and waive um, repayment of the $11 million acquisition portion of that loan that was already approved by the board. The amended and restated loan agreement then increases the city's funding to, for permanent financing to $20.5 million. Uh, we show the detailed uh, development budget on page 44 and 45 of our report, which is $87 million or $890,000 per unit approximately. The city subsidy per unit in this case is $322,000. About $100,000 per unit is the acquisition costs. Um, we do recommend approval. Thank you. And I see Vice Chair Mendelman has questions. Uh, statements. Oh, comments. <laughs> comments. Um, uh, we, I don't think we need to belabor the high per unit cost. We talked about that on the prior projects last week. But I do think, no CD knows this, but we, we have to figure out ways to get these projects done uh, for less per unit. Um, 
And at the same time, I'm very excited to see this project happening in uh, a neighborhood that has been represented by supervisors who really want to see affordable housing happening um, in, in the Richmond and uh, have often found, as I have found in District 8, challenges around sites, challenges around cost per door, um, you know, all of these things. So I am grateful to the voters for having uh, for having passed um, the housing bond with the provision that we would try to focus at least some resources in high opportunity areas, high resource areas um, that hadn't seen a lot of affordable housing development. And um, this is exciting. And looking at the site um, on, my, uh, um, on my computer right now, I'm thinking like this will be a, a very positive addition to the neighborhood and let's try and get some more affordable housing into D1 and D8 and all the other um, uh, districts that were called out in that in that bond. Thanks. Thank you, Vice Chair Mendelman, and and I'd like to be out as co-sponsor. Okay, thank you, and Supervisor Safai. Yes, I'd like to be added as a co-sponsor. Also, I think it's really important. I know this is one of the hardest. I'm sure uh, MOACD will attest to this. One of the hardest. Uh, types of housing to build given the limited funding sources uh, for senior housing. So we appreciate it. There's a, a fast growing aging population that's in significant need of affordable housing. And we want to ensure that that population is served and supported in San Francisco. So this is a really phenomenal project. We really appreciate all the hard work of staff and all the different um, people that were involved in this. So. I think this is a great addition to the community, and as I said, please add me as a co-sponsor. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. I'm grateful for this project as well, and thank you so much for the partnership with Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corporation. Just, um, it's a great site, and uh, it's right in front of the bus stop, walking distance to Farmer's Market and Clement Street's Market for the seniors. Uh, it's not too far from, like, a lot of uh, like community youth center is going to open on Clement Streets as well. We know that there's already NIMS, um, Northeast Medical Center, that they are right there uh, to, to be able to help uh, some of the seniors if they need. I also am grateful that there's conversation like early on to talk about adding veterans units, uh, which is really helpful. Uh, in fact, I think that it's a, it's a conversation that we, a fruitful conversation that we had with veteran affairs commissioners, uh, as well as the VA hospital, really thinking about having the site, having housing right, right at this location is really conveniently located, serving our veterans uh, in the neighborhood. Um, so for that, I'm grateful and thank you colleagues for your co-sponsorship. And uh, Mr. Clerk, let's go to public comment. Yes, Madam Chair, members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now to speak along the curtains. For those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001, enter the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. And for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted, and that'll be your signal to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber, uh, Mr. Lamb, can you unmute our caller, please? Hello, caller. We did hear you. Supervisors, as you see, there are very few people who are going to give public comment. Uh, what I do is I observe all this uh, willing and dealing that is going on 
And I say that because never do you all mention those who are physically challenged. And they are kept out. Even though, you know, the state and the federal is involved in many ways in this funding. And uh, I'm calling because when the people are chosen, I hope you don't use the lottery system. And we need uh, real human beings representing the most vulnerable, those making under 60,000, under 80,000 to be helped. Uh, you all may not know this, but hundreds of people are dying on the streets of San Francisco. And that's a crying shame. So that's all I have to say. I have been a fighter for affordable housing. In fact, I am going to start a project where we have our entitlements very soon. So I'm fully aware of all the shenanigans, flaws, and machinations. Thank you very much. Thank you, Francisco. The cost for your comments. And um, Mr. Lamb, okay. Uh, Madam Chair, we have no more callers in the queue. Thank you. Seeing no more public comments, public comment is now closed. Colleagues, I would like to move these two items to full board with positive recommendation. Mr. Clerk, please call the roll. On that motion to forward both items uh, to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai? Safai, aye. Chair Chan? Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Mr. Clerk, please call item 13. Yes, item number 13 is an ordinance of authorizing the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission to exempt certain design, construction, finance, operation, and maintenance services and related agreements for the public private partnership uh, delivery of the biogas utilization project at the Southeast Treatment Plant located at 1800 Gerald Avenue from Chapter 6, 14B and 21 and Section 23.30 of the Administrative Code, but requiring compliance with the underlying public policies, including the payment of prevailing wages, implementation of the local business enterprise participation program, and compliance with the city's local hire policy and first source hiring ordinance as applicable to such agreements and permitting a best value selection of the contract of contractor team if the city elects to proceed with the project after completing its review under the California Environmental Quality Act and delegating to the SFPUC the authority under the charter to approve all necessary contracts that are 10 million or more and or in excess of 10 years. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to provide comment, please call 415-655-0001, enter the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. And when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that will be your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. 
Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Today, it looks like we have a presentation by Stephen Robinson, Assistant General Manager for Infrastructure, and uh, the presentation by Danella Brandau, uh, Project Manager from the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. Thank you. Good morning, Supervisors. Yes, my name is Stephen Robinson, the Assistant General Manager for Infrastructure at PUC. Uh, this item is in support of a relatively small but very important piece of our ongoing reinvestment at the Southeast Wastewater uh, Treatment plant in the Bayview. Um, the technology is relatively simple, um, but we would like to use a public-private partnership delivery model as the most efficient and cost-effective way of meeting the project objectives and moving it forward. Members of the team are here today, but I'll hand over to Daniela for the details in the presentation. Thank you. Good morning, supervisors. I'm Daniela Brindao. I'm the project manager with the San Francisco PUC for the biogas utilization project. I would like to start with a brief overview of the project. Um, here showing to you it's located at the Southeast Treatment Plant and it will be built within the boundaries of the Biosolids Digester Facilities Project that Stephen was uh, talking about. It must be operational and ready to accept the biogas from the new digesters. It ensures beneficial use of the, of the biogas. The biogas is a byproduct of the Biosolids Processing Facilities. It upgrades this raw biogas to renewable natural gas quality and injects into an existing PG&E pipeline that's adjacent to the plant. It represents best value for the biogas and it provides environmental benefits for two reasons. First, because of the renewable credits associated with this gas and also because it replaces the plant for having a combined heat and power system on site that would require turbines. Here's a summary of the public-private partnership scope of work that we envision for the project. Here on the left, you can see PUC, Wastewater Enterprise, would still be responsible for providing this raw gas to this private entity. We would still be responsible for operating and maintaining the entire biosolids digester facilities, as well as obtaining and maintaining an air permit to operate the new facilities and we would ultimately own the interconnection agreement with PG&E for use of their pipeline. Here on the right, you see the scope of work for the private partner. It includes finance, design, construction, operation, maintenance of the biogas utilization system, as well as brokerage of the renewable natural gas sale and environmental credits associated with it, compliance with the air permit that PUC would own, in coordination of design and construction with the pipeline interconnection. So we will now talk about why we need a special ordinance to deliver the services that we just listed in the previous slide. Basically to allow the PUC to contract with a single contractor to provide a comprehensive solution to the beneficial use of the biogas that's generated at the Southeast plant. The P3 ordinance basically would allow the PUC to deliver all the services under one contract. The San Francisco Administrative Code currently does not contemplate a P3. So we ask for exemptions of Chapter 6, 14B, 21, and 23.3 of the Administrative Code to allow the PUC to select based on best value. This would still be a competitive procurement we would still meet the objectives of the chapters listed above. For example, we know 14B has LBE goals that are 
associated with a fixed price. However, for a P3 project, we do not have a fixed price. PUC would not be making that capital investment. However, we would work with CMD to develop LBE requirements that would be appropriate for the P3 contract. Chapter 6, Chapter 21 always also talk about a fixed price or a, or a guarantee max price. However, there is no price. Again, uh, the ordinance would bring back the objectives or meet the objectives, but we wouldn't have the conflicting uh, requirements that we would have out, outside the ordinance or without the ordinance. I would like to reiterate the ordinance does not approve the project, rather it allows the PUC to proceed with the P3 delivery. We plan to return to the board for award of the contract. So our proposed action, we ask the committee to recommend this ordinance to the full board and we ask the board to adopt the ordinance authorizing the PUC to exempt certain design, construction, finance, operation and maintenance services and related agreements for the P3 development. The exemptions again would allow us to, to have one contract responsible for the entire scope of services that we listed today. And to end, we have a slide showing the schedule associated with this project. We are initiating the procurement process. We are anticipating a two-step process with RFQ and RFP. And we are anticipating returning to the board for contract award in July of 2024. It's important to note we are anticipating design build will take approximately two years. And we have to have this facility operational in the fall of 2026 to take it on the gas that will be generated by the new digesters. Thank you. That will open for questions. Thank you. I don't see any questions on the roster. Um, I, I just wanted to sort of uh, put this in context a bit more for just the public um, to say that this is providing exemption to the procurement process for SFPUC to enter, to identify a contractor to carry out one single contract for the biogas um, project and it's important because we want to deliver simultaneously at around the same time for the biosolid uh, project and that what we're looking at when the, with the exemptions of chapter 6 14b and um, and 21 as well as the administrative code 23.3 they are sub you know, prospectively, the six is an exemption for construction uh, contract, 14B is for local business requirement, and the 21 is for uh, services and goods, and the 23.3 is really for the lease of real property. And in this case, uh, particularly, we do identify and see through, from your, based on your presentation, that we're really uh, working with PG&E so that we can actually, you, you know, utilize their infrastructure, which is the existing pipeline, uh, to deliver the biogas. Um, so with that, I, I also know that, you know, uh, you have mentioned in this ordinance that in, in our discussion about delegating the uh, chapter Charter sections 9.118, which is the board authority in terms of approving contracts um, to, to delegate that authority to SIPUC. But I think through our conversation, uh, and, and as I understand it, that you have accepted the fact that 
since it's a single contract, contract typically coming through as resolution, coming to the board, I think it's, it's deserving for us to have that conversation about what the contract looks like, who the contractor that you end up selected, and allow really uh, not just this committee, but really the body, uh, the, the board supervisors, including colleagues like uh, that, you know, district uh, 11, district 9, district 10, particularly district 10, Supervisor Shaman Walton, should at least really understand and have conversation with his constituents in a public process to approve this contract. Uh, so with that is that uh, I believe that we have come to an agreement uh, to strike out the um, language uh, delegating that authority, yes. uh, section 9.118. Thank you. Um, seeing that no other comments from colleagues, um, Mr. Clerk, please go to public comment. Thank you, Chair Chan. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now to speak to your right. For those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001, enter the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. And for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you haven't been muted and that'll be your signal to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber, Mr. Lamb, uh, can you unmute our caller, please? Callers. Can you hear me now? Please go. Great, uh, David Pilpel. So I am excited and supportive of the Biosolids Digester Facility Project at the PUC's Wastewater Enterprise Southeast uh, Treatment Plant. It's a very important infrastructure uh, project. I have no issue with the P3 uh, procurement uh, method. My issue is with the delegation of authority under Charter Section 9.118, which you just discussed, and my comments may have been obviated, but I want them on the record. The Charter provides that such contracts shall be subject to approval and under Section C, prior approval or first approval of the Board of Supervisors by resolution. The charger is specific about both method of approval and timing, and no delegations contemplated. I went back to review the SNS trucking case, but found nothing on the issue of delegated authority. I think a court would conclude that such contracts are subject to approval of the Board of Supervisors by resolution. Such Board of Supervisors contract approvals are also subject to Form 126 reporting with the Ethics Commission. We don't know who the proposed contractor is at this time. The Board of Supervisors may have concerns about the contractor, I have no idea. Today's PUC presentation on slide four states that the PUC will return to the board for approval or award of the contract. If that is true, then why is the 9.118 delegation needed at all? You could remove page 10, lines one through 12, which it sounds like you're about to do by amendment. If not, um, you, uh, well, either way, you should amend the subsequent sections because that was actually section four and not section five. So the sections on uh, page 10 and uh, 11 need to be uh, renumbered, uh, sections 4 and 5. Uh, there's also no BLA report. This is definitely a policy matter, and BLA background uh, would help. If the amendment is deemed substantive, then uh, you would amend and continue. Uh, you could also continue the item uh, on your own um, or uh, amend and forward it to the board as amended. Those are my comments. Thank you very much for listening. Mr. Lamb, next speaker, please. This matter came before the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission some time ago without any clear decision-making. It's now come before this committee. 
We have a new person in the contract monitoring division. I believe her name is Stephanie Tang. She should have been here to answer a few questions. We should have had a person from contracting to answer a few questions. The way SFPUC does this is they'll go directly to one or two board of supervisors and one of the board of supervisors who is in the chair uh, was talking as if she knows a lot about this when she practically knows nothing. When we are dealing with PJ&E, when we are dealing with an entity that we don't know who's this contractor that's going to be chosen, then we have to have standards. And we, we must understand very clearly that the SFPUC has no standards. We have several people who are being indicted. And so we have to be very cautious. Just like the nonprofits, the controller says one thing, but still we have over 130 nonprofits who are not in good standing. San Francisco Public Utilities Commission is not in good standing. There's not a single engineer on the commission. The, the general manager jumped ship from being an attorney, city attorney, to becoming the general manager to make a 500,000 salary. Speaker now you can... I do apologize for cutting anybody off, but we are timing each speaker at two minutes. Uh, Mr. Oh, um, Madam Chair, that completes our queue. Thank you. Seeing no more public comment, public comment is now closed. Uh, colleagues, I would like to um, make the amendment to this legislation, um, removing the delegation of charter authority um, of section 9.118 from the board to SFPUC. So correcting the title on page one, lines one and 13 through 15, removing section five entirely on page 10, lines one to 13. And with that, um, Mr. Clark, please call the motion to amend. Call uh, Apologies. Uh, on that motion, to amend the ordinance uh, by striking the delegation of charter contract approval authority language as offered by Chair Chan. Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Um, and Mr. Clark, I would like to make the motion to move the amended uh, ordinance to the full board with positive recommendation. Please call the roll. On that motion to forward the ordinance to the full board with a positive recommendation as amended. Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Mr. Clerk, please call item number 14. Yes, item number 14 is a resolution approving modification number three to a license and services agreement between the city and county acting by and through its airport commission and airport research and development foundation, a non-for-profit corporation to extend the services term of the agreement for two years through March 12, 2025 and cap the payment of the administrative services fee by city uh, at up to 144000 annually uh, for the period of March 13, 2023 through March 12, 2025 for an aggregate 
amount not to exceed approximately 1.9 million. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to provide comment for this, uh, please call 415-655-0001, enter the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A prompt will indicate that you raised your hand, and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, uh, does your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Uh, looks like we have Diana Volick from Government Affairs Managers, who's from SFO, from the San Francisco Airport, and then it has a BLA report. So, but she's online today, I believe. Yes, I am. Thank you. Good morning, uh, committee members. The proposed resolution would approve the third modification to the airport's license agreement with the Airport Research and Development Foundation, or ARDA, to use airport technology to monitor transportation network companies, also known as TNCs, such as Uber and Lyft, trips and collect trip fees on behalf of SFO and license the technology for use at other airports. This system was invented by SFO staff and the airport received a U.S. patent for the technology. The system defines a perimeter around the airport using geographic coordinates and tracks pickups and drop-offs by these companies at the airport for the collection of trip fees. This licensing agreement was originally approved by the Board of Supervisors in 2015 for an initial two-year term with three one-year options to extend. In March 2020, the Board of Supervisors approved modification number two, extending the term by three years with an additional two-year option to extend and reducing the cap of the administrative services fee to 144,000 annually. The contract was extended to allow ARDF, a nonprofit trade organization, to continue to offer the system to other airports. Currently, there are 33 airports in total using the system. Modification number three would exercise the two-year option to extend and increase the not to exceed amount by 288,000 for a total not to exceed amount of 1.97 million. The proposed modification would allow SFO to continue to collect service development fees from ARDF when they license the technology to other airports until it can issue a competitive solicitation before the contract extension expires in 2025. While the airport has paid a total of 1.68 million in admin fees to ARDF over the current term of the agreement, the airport collected over 30 million in TNC trip fees and fines last year alone. SFO is extremely proud of this technology and the ability to license it to other airports to help with the management of TNC operations and collect revenue. The Budget Analyst Office has recommended approval and I am happy to answer any questions along with members of our Landside Operations team. Thank you. Item 14 is a resolution approving Modification three to the airport's agreement with the Airport Research and Development Foundation. Um, this is an agreement that allows the airport to track TNC trips at the airport and properly assess the fee for those rides. Um, that technology is also licensed to other airports, as was just noted by the department. We showed the fiscal impact of this agreement on page 49 of our report, uh, which shows that the airport would pay $288,000 over two years um, to the contractor, um, but generate approximately $92.4 million in net revenue from um, TNC trips primarily, but also from some of the license fees from other airports using this technology. We recommend approval. Thank you. Seeing no questions, and um, Mr. Clerk, please go to public comment.
Yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now. Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403. Then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. And for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. And that will be your signal to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber. And Madam Chair, we have no speakers in the queue. Thank you. Seeing no public comment, public comment is now closed. Colleagues, I would like to move this item to full board with positive recommendation. Mr. Clerk, please call the roll. On that motion, to forward the resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation. Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Mr. Clerk, please call item number 15. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, item number 15 is a resolution authorizing the Director of Property on behalf of the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing to amend the lease with 33 Golf LLC as landlord of the real property located at 33 Golf Street for continued use as a non-congregate cabin program, setting a base rent of approximately $1.3 million per year, extending the term for two years for a total term of March 14, 2020 through March 13, 2025, with a one-year option to extend and authorizing the director of property to execute documents, make certain modifications, and take certain actions in furtherance of the extended term under the lease and this resolution as defined. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to provide comment for this resolution, please call 415-655-0001, enter the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that will be your cue to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Today we have Emily Cohen, Deputy Director of Communications and Legislative Affairs from the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing for this project. It's an, we colleagues just want a reminder that we've approved this before. Um, this is uh, an amendment uh, of the existing lease. It does have a BLA report. Good morning, Chair, Supervisors. Um, Emily Cohen with the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. I'm here before you today with a resolution to authorize HSH to extend our lease for the property at 33 Goff, which would allow us to continue the use of the site as a cabin community. This resolution is the first amendment to our lease agreement with 33 Goff LLC to rent the 49,000 square foot property and surrounding parking areas for continued use. The current term started of the lease started in March of 2020 and expires in March of 2023. The new term would extend the lease by two years through March of 2025 with a one year option to extend. The amendment would increase the rent amount from 1.26 million per year to 1.37 million with no annual increases. Uh, just to give a short program overview, many folks are familiar with this project. This was the first cabin community or tiny home community piloted in San Francisco. It's been up and running for about a year. We originally used the property as a safe sleep site as part of the initial COVID response. And in partnership with Dignity Moves, Tipping Point, and Urban Alchemy, we've been able to pilot this innovative and creative 
shelter model in our community, which includes the use of private cabins, about 64 square feet, so small units, individual rooms with a bed, desk, heating, storage, an outlet, and most importantly, a door that locks, really offering shelter guests dignity and privacy as they work with the on-site services to move out of homelessness. There's additionally on-site two dining areas. Uh, we provide meals, there's a computer room, showers, restrooms, case management, and security all offered on-site. I've had the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time at this property and project and really get very, very positive feedback from clients, really speaking to the dignity and safety that they feel when they can lock the door behind them. So this is an excellent pathway for folks on their way to housing and a really um, well-received program both by guests and, I must say, by neighbors, uh, which is refreshing. So with that, we request your support for extension of the lease. Thank you. Thank you. Item 15 uh, is a resolution approving an amendment to an existing lease um, with 33 Goff LLC. Um, it, the amendment would extend the lease through um, by two years with an optional one-year extension. So in total, the term would be through March 2026. Um, the lease, as noted, is used to um, for the city to operate a tiny cabin site, um, which is a pilot shelter program. We detail the fiscal impact of the lease on page 56 of our report, where we note that the base rent of the lease goes uh, is increasing by 9% to $1.3 million um, a year. That, uh, we, you know, we did review information provided by the real estate division um, to confirm that this is at or below market rate. Um, we also note in our report that the, um, this, the, the operating costs for the, for the program on site, which amounts to about $78,000 per cabin uh, per year. Um, and finally, I want to note that there's companion legislation on the agenda today that would approve a um, accept and expand of a state grant of $10.9 million um, that will be used to, f uh, to fund the cost of the lease and the program uh, for this fiscal year and for the majority of costs next fiscal year. And we recommend approval. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. Thank you, Chair. Um, Deputy Director Cohen, I just have a few questions as, I'm, as I dug into this that I want a little clarity on. So the Department of Homeless Support of Housing treats these cabins, what, what bucket does it fall into? Is uh, it shelter? Yes, thank okay. you, sir. This so you guys, are, you guys are treating these, these tiny homes as shelter? not permanent supportive housing? Correct, okay. shelter. So is there a limit on the stay that people can remain there? Are people coming and going? Do, do, the, do the units turn over frequently? Can you give us a little bit more um, information on that? Absolutely, like all shelters in our system, there is no length of stay limit. Um, so folks can stay long-term or some folks will use the shelter very, uh, short term. We have served. Can I just interrupt for one second? Of course. I think one thing that makes it a little different is if you're going to a shelter, like a shelter bed or a more congregate shelter, you might not necessarily be assigned the same space every night. 
You might not be able to bring your, leave your items in a place. You might have to go put them in a secure location and find. So this is, this is, a, this is a different model of shelter. Correct. Right? This is each, more... per, each person has their own individualized room, bed, and privacy. This is more similar to the hotel-based shelters that we are now operating coming out of the SIP hotel program. So with people having individual rooms. Mm -hmm. um, so similarly, no length of stay limit across our entire shelter system. We have served 128 households with 156 people since the program began, and 60 have left. So we do have a relatively stable community here. It's not a very high turnover shelter. I think that speaks to its popularity. It is also a very you know, robust with amenities and well-established community at this point. So you've served 128 individuals? Households. 156. Households. So a couple of, about 20 couples. <clears throat> so 156 individuals? Correct. And 60 have left? Correct. So can you talk a little bit about the 60 that left and where they went? So I can tell you that 16 have gone on to shelter or permanent housing. And we only have information about five returning to the street as Anyone who works in shelter, or you, I'm sure you all are familiar, we don't always know where people go when they leave. Um, we try to conduct exit interviews, but it is quite often that people bet abandon, abandon um, which is basically meaning they don't come back one day and we don't necessarily know where they went. And unfortunately, that is pretty common in shelter. So, you know, I got the question from your staff this morning, supervisor, and from what I oft, the question I often get is, okay, so how many people went to housing from this shelter? How did this shelter do in placing people into housing? And I just wanna be very clear that it is not solely the shelter's responsibility for getting people into housing. We have a centralized housing placement and navigation system. So if you stay at MSC South for two weeks, but you have a fight with your neighbor you know, in the bed next door or something happens and you switch over to next door or you go stay with on a couch for a couple of days. We don't want you to lose your housing progress. Um, given the transient nature of people experiencing homelessness, tying housing placement to a specific shelter becomes problematic because people do move from shelter to shelter for a variety of reasons. And that's why the logic behind having a centralized placement process. And to that end, in this fiscal year to date, we have moved over 1,400 people into permanent housing out of either off the street or out of shelters. I, I, I get that. I'm just trying to zero in on this model, trying to look at this particular location. Do you track individuals when they arrive? Do you get their data? Do yeah. you put them in the system? Is that part of the agreement for having an individualized room, bed, and privacy? Absolutely. So they're tracked as they arrive, but you're not necessarily always able to track them when they leave because sometimes they just don't return. You said some of them went on to other shelter. Is that what you said? Yeah, seven. That sounds seven surprising. Seven went on to, to other me. shelter. What kind of other shelter would they want to go to that's not an individualized private you know, room? People have all sorts of different reasons for Got wanting it. to be in a different location. Um, but I, the data does indicate that seven people went to another shelter. Okay. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about was the operating costs. Okay. So you said 78,000 per person. 
Can you, can you break that down a little bit? Because one of the things that, that, and the reason I was asking about the being classified as a shelter, is that you're providing two meals a day for each of these individuals. Can you give us a little bit of information about the, the demographics of the folks that are there? Because that seems, that seems to be that that would add some significant cost and coordination to the site. And do you do that at all your, all your shelters? You're providing people two meals a day at all your shelters? Yes. Okay. So, if, yeah, if you can break down the 78,000, that would be helpful. Sure. So, in terms of the cabins, the operating cost is about $3.2 million per year. Taxes and lease expenses are another $1.7 million. Meals are 528000 for a total of about $5.5 million in operating. I think one of the reasons... Can you, can you repeat that one more time? 5.5 no, million. No, 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 the, oh. the breakdown, just start over. Sure. 3.2 in operating, this is the contract with Urban Alchemy. 1.7 million in lease and taxes. $528,000 approximately in meals. And for a total of $5.5 million. One of the reasons this property is a bit more expensive to operate than others is that lease it is, and taxes. What's that? Is the lease. The correct? lease, right? We're paying market rate here. Um, it is not quite big enough to get to the economies of scale that we see in like a 250 bed facility. But it is also if you've been to the site, it's on two separate parking lots that are divided by a building. I, I so it's effectively needs to be operated and staffed like two separate projects. And so the, the staffing economies of scale are much lower. You have to have security at the top lot and security at the bottom lot rather than just what, you know, security for the project. You have monitors at the showers and bathrooms at the top lot as well as at the bottom. So that split lot function does require significantly more staffing. And I just want to go back to the, you said you're paying market rate. What, and this is city college owned land, correct? It is, but it, it has a long-term lease with a private developer. I think it's a 99-year lease with a private developer. They are planning to break ground on a housing development there. It, it was delayed because of financing and costs on their end, and which is why we have the opportunity. The private developer? 33 Goff LLC. And so they're with land that would be sitting fallow, they decided to charge us and we agreed to pay market rent for, because we wanted to use this as a demonstration to show that this could be. The problem is it ends up showing that the per unit, the operating cost per unit is, is pretty high. It is pretty high. Every site is different. And just because it's a cabin model doesn't mean that every cabin model will have the same operating costs because the physical layout is so important to the staffing pattern. We really staff based on what the site requires. And, you know, if this was all in one parking lot rather than two, I think our staffing costs would be lower. And, w and then, okay, so the lease, so that kind of jumps out at me. But then the, the operating $3.2 can you break that down a little bit? What, what are we getting for $3.2 So this includes... 34.8 FTE 
in staffing, 34 staff. It's 24 seven staffing with two staff just Whoa. to monitor the showers and eight staff for security. This is a very in service, like staff intensive model. Wow. As well as case management services. Is that the normal at your shelters? You know, again, it varies by site because you have to staff based on the, phys the physical I, I location, I, but go ahead, this is a higher staffing ratio than we see at some of the, our more congregate shelters. Interesting. I guess why I'm asking is because, again, I, I certainly when we did our safe parking, we had two on-site security, 24 hours. I definitely think um, that that's a really important piece of the model. I guess what I'm trying to understand is how the decisions were made. 34 staff to how many, how many tiny homes do we have? 70? 70 cabins that can fit 100 people. That's a lot. At a time. That's more, that's more than a classroom. And I'm, I'm not even trying to be funny. I'm just saying that that is a significant staff to mm -hmm. client or patient ratio. So I would, I would hope that, I mean, we want it to be successful. We want folks to have, but what are those staff doing besides security and monitoring the showers? Are, is there, They're working directly with the clients are they, to... Are they, pro, are they service providing on site? Is there mental health? Is there job training? Is it refer... Like, what, what are we getting for 34 yep. staff? So you're getting site monitoring. You're getting case management. You are getting connection with long-term care and service, housing assessments, referrals, um, a lot of motivational interviewing and working with the guests. You know, I think this is an area where everyone wants shelter to be cheaper than it is. And I think we all really struggle with this. But then the question becomes, this is a site with one of the most peaceful atmospheres of any shelter I've been to. It is also a neighborhood that has improved because a shelter was placed here. The encampments in the area have reduced hosting the community meeting for this extension was a pleasure. Neighbors were coming out to thank Urban Alchemy and Dignity no. Moves for what they're doing. And what I, I, my sure. only point is that higher levels of staffing help. And No question about it. My, my only point that I'm trying to underscore is if we have a model that we're trying to scale, three to one staffing ratio is not a scalable model. We, we just don't have the money for that. And I don't think would be necessary on a single and I, lot. I, again, I think in a perfect, I would love to make, wave a magic wand. But again, part of what we were doing when we did Prop C, kind of bringing the auditing, the oversight, mm -hmm. the account, like this is not a scalable, and I want to scale on the tiny homes. So I, that's why I'm asking the question. The, the last question I'll ask, and I know Supervisor Mandelman is on there, and I, I hope I'm not dominating too much, but I, I did want to ask one more because we understand that there's a difference in how this was put together yeah. in terms of the cost of the actual tiny homes versus what we heard last week in Supervisor Ronan's district that is potentially on hold. The cost is 100000 per unit potentially. Can you talk about that? I can talk a little bit about that. I think the, the paper sort of blew that out of... That's fine. Well, Proportion. Why don't you talk but, about yes. it from your own perspective then. Absolutely. So as as you might all be aware, the cabin community at 33 Golf was made possible because of a partnership with Tipping Point and Dignity Moves and um, 
representatives from Dignity Moves are here today as well. And we were able to, you know, get the, the cabins donated and get the labor donated. And, but when speaking with Dignity Moves, the all-in estimate of what the cabins cost, including ADA accessibility, bathrooms, the community rooms, and all the goods and services that they were able to get donated, including getting utilities and power to the site, is probably about $50,000 per cabin. So as we think about the city delivering a similar project, we estimated that the cost of goods and services would have gone up slightly from the time that this was open because of inflation and some of the challenges that our colleagues at Public Works are having with getting building materials. So estimating about $60,000 per cabin. In addition, there are costs that the city has to pay if we do the project. That said, Public Works is going to be putting out the Mission Cabin to bid, the Mission Cabin community to bid, and we won't know what the actual cost of that is until we get those bids in. So in this model, the, the cabins were purchased and installed for free? Um, at, no, at no cost to the city? At no cost to the city with the agreement that we fund the ongoing operations. And who owns the cabins now? Um, Home First, which is a nonprofit organization that is a partner with Dignity Moves. Got it. Okay. I'll, I'll, I have a few more questions, but I know Supervisor Mandelman has been waiting patiently. I apologize. And before I go to Supervisor Mandelman, I know we do have the BIA report, but let's have the Supervisor Mandelman to go first, and then we'll come back. Oh, I, or did I already, we already reported. Do that? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was like, I oh. So, I have so many questions, you forgot about their report. Good. I was like, wait, he forgot about their positive he, recommendation. He, I know, the positive <laughs> recommendation. I was like, wait, do we actually have sorry. that conversation? No, it's okay. Um, let's uh, go to Supervisor, Vice Chair Mandelman. Uh, thank you, Chair Chan, and um, I'm not going to um, make you stand here for too terribly long because we're going to have you back for the place for all um, committee of the whole and I think we're going to be getting into a lot of these questions then. Um, I am curious, I mean along the lines of somewhat along the lines of what uh, of what Supervisor Safai was going down there is, well first actually before I go down any, any lines I do want to thank um, Dignity Moves and I want to thank Tipping Point and HSH and Urban Alchemy um, for trying this model out because I think, you know, two, three years ago um, there had been the experiment with the safe sleep sites, which I had been a big champion of, um, felt like we could do something better than tents. Um, the same issues are coming up around operating costs. Um, and so now I'll go back to the lines I was going down. We need something that, as Supervisor Safai is saying, is scalable to get many more people off the sidewalk than we are able to get off the sidewalk now. And, um, and we will talk about this more in the Place for All hearing, but that report felt a little bit like waving the white flag. There's just no way to do it. We know what the costs, what the real costs are. They look like seventy dollars to $80,000 operating a shelter bed, whether it's a tent, whether it's a hotel, whatever it is, you're just stuck with that. Get used to it. Um, and I think we have to push, push against that. I mean, I think we really, in the same way that we cannot accept a, a $2 million Noe Valley bathroom, 
I think we should try not to accept a seventy or eighty thousand dollar operating cost for whatever we do that is not the sidewalk. And there were experiments during the pandemic with the unmonitored um, safe sleep site or the minimally monitored, monitored safe sleep site, which was cheaper, I think, but was also quite bad for the neighborhood and quite bad for the people who were in it. And I am interested and will be pressing to see, and I think some of my colleagues as well, is there something between the unregulated sidewalk or, unre or largely unregulated um, uh, parking lot in the Tenderloin that was, became overrun by drug dealers and something that operationally is costing <laughs> us seventy or $80,000? I mean, these places feel safe when you walk. I mean, that is Urban Alchemy's intention, and they put a lot of staff in there, and and there are a lot of very high needs individuals in there in all sorts of mental health states and all sorts of addiction states and urban alchemy manages to keep it under control. Great. I think we cannot give just accept though the costs as they're coming in and so I think we're going to sort of be pressing on that. It also does strike me and we've talked some about inflow. And I think we're going to talk more about inflow at at, at the hearing, but um, we're a little bit limited, or one of the things that I've run up against in my conversations about inflow is sort of lack of information, lack of data about, um, about unhoused people in San Francisco. Do we gather inflow data from people at our shelter sites like 33 Golf? Are we asking mm -hmm. where were you last housed? How long have you been in San Francisco? Because it seems like at the very least, since the point, since a lot of what we're doing is extrapolation and guessing, th that information would probably be useful. We do do some data collection on this. Um, the administrative data, from my understanding, and I, I'll be better poised to speak about this at the hearing, yeah. um, is similar to what we get from the point in time count, but we do have a lot of missing oh data God. in this field. So absolutely, but back to, if I may go back yeah, sure. to your original question and point around the cost of shelter generally, and you know, 33 Golf is a, an example that we're talking through today. I think we have some policy decisions to make as a community about where we cut costs. And you know, we provide two meals a day. Does that go I to I don't think one? that $500,000 is the driver though. I don't think it is. <laughs> you know, do we only open shelters on city owned property that would make give us fewer options but it would be cheaper do we not do ambassadors and security which is becoming more of a model do we not provide case management do or we want to pay our there... workers less i mean these are the trade-offs that we're talking about and do we want to have you know fewer bathrooms to client ratio right these are all things that are in the admin code well some of them are in the admin code and some of them have developed out of advocacy from people with lived experience of homelessness shelter operators and this board and it, that all of that together has driven up the price and i think for for good reason i know we all want to solve this issue and we all want to solve it as efficiently as possible but this is not an inexpensive issue to solve and it's not going to be, but we as a community and you as policymakers, we have, that's where this, these decisions will be made. And these are hard trade-offs. 
Um, and what we modeled in A Place for All and what you're seeing in the 33 Golf is what we think shelter should be. A dignified, safe place where you are fed and you do get case management and there is security and the neighborhood feels positively about the site. We can do this cheaper, but we'll need your help to determine where those cuts should be because they're not going to be, that, you know, that would be very hard, I think, for either the guests or the community to, to handle. But I think even within your own, even the portfolio that you manage, there's different urban alchemy sites. They come in at different amounts, depending Absolutely. on yep. what your staff, you can do different staffing ratios in a, in, in a converted former hostel where people are sharing rooms versus on a parking lot where you're um, trying to maintain order. And you yourself have suggested, Absolutely. you know, a split parking lot is less efficient than. So I'm not imagining that, you know, 70 or $80,000 a year in operating costs becomes 20. But if it's 55, that's a whole that's a whole lot more shelter you can get. And Absolutely. I mean, the other sort of wild speculation <clears throat> that I would, or the no, other thought that I have is, so much of what HSH has done since its inception has been chasing after ideas that have been thrown at it by politicians, by community, whoever, that in some ways the department hasn't actually had the opportunity to drive its own kind of... <laughs> plan, but also I think maybe agreeing with you, you haven't gotten very clear direction from policymakers about what it is we actually want. I tried to give you some direction in place for all. Even that came in through the Board of Supervisors process pretty muddy. Um, and that's not the only policy direction you've, you're getting. At the same time, you're getting very conflicting messages about. So in some ways, getting our story straight for you about what we actually want you to do. I want you to end unsheltered homelessness and get as many people off the sidewalk as quickly as you possibly can. But I'm not sure we've given you the consensus statement out of decision makers that would make that your direction and make it clear that you just need to get as many shelter placements open as quickly as possible and put them into HSOC service. Um, Anyway, um, I do think this data thing is interesting. I do want to talk more with you about, about inflow and how we use the data from the services that we provide to look to get a better sense of what our unhoused population is like, because you can tell me that it's only, you know, you can tell me it's 30% uh, not San Franciscan, and, um, and I'm not sure I agree with that, um, and I'd love to have more information. Um, and then I also, you know, I think, you know I have the suspicion that HSH thinks the solution to homelessness is housing. I mean, it is in some sense, but that you're pursuing that as your policy and that you're over-investing in PSH um, relative to other, to other interventions or imagining that that's what you should be doing. Um, and I think having a better sense of where people, the two and other of Supervisor Safai's questions, keeping, if you are keeping track of, of to the best you can where people go out of shelter, how many of them are being navigated to something else? How many of them are just walking away? And is there any way over time, I mean, if 70% of these people are San Franciscans and are going to stick around, like, are we seeing them pop up again two years later? And are we able to track, oh, you were at that shelter, now you're at this shelter? So some of those, yes. so there's some of the questions I'm kind of interested in, we can pursue further later on. But um, I think that's it. Thank you, Vice Chair Mandelman, Supervisor Safai. Thanks. Um, just wanted to give him, uh, Supervisor Mandelman, the opportunity, because I know I was dominating. But 
I just, I just want to say for the record, I think that just intuitively, a tiny homes and cabins make sense to me. It makes sense to be able to have your own private, individualized room that gives you some dignity that you might not have had for an individual and not, might not have had that privacy and dignity for a significant amount of time. So I just want to say that, and I really appreciate this. Very similar to some of the questions that we had when we did safe parking. No one had ever done it in the city. We did it in District 11 at the Balboa. We didn't have to pay, you know, $2 million a year for rent because it was a nonprofit, so it worked out. It wasn't necessarily city land, but, you know, that was my question. Like, if this is a private developer, I would have hoped that we would have been able to work out a, a better deal. So that would be, to me, an area where to work out and have additional cost savings. In terms of the operating costs, as Supervisor Mandelman said, and, and you have said, I think it's important to kind of get a real policy direction and clarity. Some sites might need more staffing, some sites might, might need less. But I think one thing that you've heard from us consistently, at least when you come into the neighborhood, is you want 24-hour monitoring, you want security on site, you want the relationship with the community and the local police force and the appropriate departments, whether it's HSH, uh, DPH, and others. You know, so I think that, that, is a, that is a straightforward. The cost, the question about the cost of the cabins is something that's gonna come back up because we can't replicate that model. We can't, someone's not gonna gift to us every single time and we're not going to have installation as part of that public-private partnership. So that's something that we have to dig in on. Mm -hmm. The origin of where the cabins come from, if they're prefabricated, that's an important question that this board will, will talk about and, and grapple with. Um, that's why I brought that up, but that we can have more conversation about that later because it's important that we're doing something I know the city cares a lot about, respecting uh, the men and women uh, that are in the building trades and the work that they do. And so that's an important piece of the conversation as well. Um, so just wanted to get some of these questions um, out there in preparation to our larger kind of committee of the whole. Um, the idea that we're um, thinking about shelter in a new way, I think that that's something that's, that's, that should be driving our conversation. The last thing I will say, just to end on, is that one of, the, one of the other motivating factors for Prop C was to really begin a conversation about having your department be more data-driven and ensuring that we're looking at the data, that we're learning from the data, that the data is driving a lot of the policy decisions. I haven't necessarily felt that in a lot of the conversations that we've had. I think, like Supervisor Mandelman said, and, and I brought up earlier, like having a real intake to get the understanding of the individual that you're dealing with, how long they've been in San Francisco, when they arrived, what are some of their needs, and then kind of crafting their response based on that. I mean, I think that that's helpful. And I don't necessarily feel like then that then goes into a system. So if they end up not coming back one day and then they end up in a shelter or somewhere else in the system, we have that individualized plan already in place and it's tracking and leading to better outcomes. I haven't gotten that, that sense. Excuse me. That is very much a part of what we do through both our coordinated entry assessment and program intake is to collect that data. We, of course, also allow people to opt out of answering questions. We don't make shelter contingent upon answering those questions. So we do get some opt-outs 
but this is absolutely data we do collect and monitor and used um, you know, in our modeling for a place for all, and we can definitely talk more about that in the, a place for all hearing. But I want to assure you, we are collecting data. Okay. Well, we can talk more about the data because that's something that I haven't necessarily gotten uh, full answers on a lot of the data that we've been asking for because the question then, the answers came back. We're not really required to gather that. We don't force people to do that. We don't push too hard. I mean, one of the simple questions is, well, when was the last place that you had residents? And you're like, San Francisco. Well, is there a follow-up to see how long you've been in the city, where you were, what was your last address? All those things, I don't, again, we can, we can talk more about that at a, at a later uh, hearing. So thank you for this. Just want to end with, I think that this is a, a great model and idea that, that hopefully we can find a way to make it financially feasible to scale. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. I, um, you know, I, maybe it's my, my bad. I, I should have also probably called item 16 together with this one, given the fact that I think, according to the BLA report, that uh, partly that from item 16, which is actually a, a state grant, and that state grants of like roughly 10.9, almost $10.9 million, really is partly actually go to, to what we're looking at here with 33 golf. Um, and, and so I have to say, so I agree with my colleagues that, you know, the cost is too high, uh, but I am grateful that partly we are actually receiving state grant funding to fund this and, and keep this going. Now, however, I do actually have two questions. No, noted that both Urban Alchemy and Salvation Army are the two nonprofits that we basically work with to provide services on site. Um, and given the fact that, you know, especially Supervisor Safai had really talked about the nonprofit status, what is the status for both Urban Alchemy and um, Salvation Army? So the item before you today is the lease, um, not the cost, sure. but both Urban Alchemy is in good standing. I have looked that up. Um, are they? Because I'm not too yes, sure. Yes, they are. The, I'm wondering about Salvation Army because they are the meal prov I'm not sure that they are the meal provider. I actually thought it was Meals on Wheels. Salvation Army? Mother Brown's. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I would need to get more Emily. information. Thank you, Gigi. <laughs> the, the meals are, are being moved over to um, the, our Meals on Wheels contract. Um, but Urban Alchemy um, is not on the, the state delinquency list. And I can, I can look up Salvation Army, but don't believe they're on either. Okay. So you're moving from Salvation Army to Meals on Wheels? They're moving to Meals on Wheels, yes. Uh, when, when is that going to take place? I'm going to call on my colleague Gigi to help answer that question. Thank you. And, and, and this is Gigi Whitley, Deputy Director of Administration Sorry. and Finance, right? Yes. Sorry, I should have introduced myself. Okay. Thank you, uh, Chair Chan. Yes, Gigi Whitley, HSH, Deputy Director of Admin and Finance. Good to be with you. Um, with the, uh, if, if the board was, were to approve the lease extension, we will then start extending the agreement and um, the meals will switch over to um, our traditional meal provider for um, our, our shelters, which is Meals on Wheels. So that would occur in March once we amend um, the agreement. 
Thank you. But both agreements, both with Urban Alchemy and actually Meals on Wheels, will not be coming to the board because they do not meet 9.118. Correct. Correct. Okay. So I just wanted to remind colleagues that neither of those grant agreements in terms of, so today, yes, we are only looking at the lease amendment, uh, allowing this continue, really just the physical cabinet, you know, to continue about 70 units. Um, Without it, it's gonna be an empty site that has no activities, because clearly the developer has no intention to do anything for the next, looks like, till 2026. Um, the programming, though, uh, in terms of how they run the program, uh, why the staffing of 68, you know, FTE full-time, 24-7, uh, which then, you know, cumulatively for uh, over $3 million of annual operation cost for Urban Alchemy and others is not going to be coming to this body for any questions. So any questions that you have about the programming, I'm afraid you will have to have a separate briefing um, with, H with the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. Now, I, I too have questions about just the program itself, but today, again, we're looking at the lease amendment, but I am open to the, to the conversation of approving this item, moving this forward without recommendation, or you know, just looking at the lease itself, I would say that an, on an empty lot, and being able to uh, have this annual base rent slightly increase from the previous. However, it's not going to be an annual increase. This is actually for the next two years um, till tw March 2025 with the option of extending it till March 2026. Um, there's no increase for the next three years. This is it. Um, so I'm open for discussion to see if we want to move this without recommendation or do we want to um, move this with recommendation, but hold your thoughts and because we have go to public comments. So why don't we go to public comments while we all noodle on this and uh, Mr. Clerk. Thank you, Chair Chan. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now. Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Once connected, please. Uh, Press star three to enter the speaker line. And for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and it'll be your signal to uh, begin your comments. Um, yes, uh, either microphone is fine. And uh, okay. once you start Great. talking. We're double tuning here. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Funk. I am the founder and CEO of Dignity Moves. And I just, first of all, want to commend the city for being willing to try new things and experiment with this model. I know it's um, kind of out of the norm. And I think it's, um, I've, had a feeling that this was going to be, be something that would be attractive. I didn't realize that it would be so well re received. Um, I just think it's, it's really been the right thing at the right time. But I want to um, reflect your comments back to you, which is that we really do need to figure out how to do this at scale. And um, we've now done several of these communities elsewhere around the country, around the, the state, and um, you know, can certainly brainstorm ideas on that. But I think the most important thing is that if we really take advantage of the fact that people really want to do these and you can move them around from time to time, right? That things are good for 20 years. You really have a great opportunity to, to do this at scale and, um, and maybe have different levels of services and different programs depending on what the residents need. So thank you for being innovative and being willing to be flexible and would love to help be a partner on, on thinking about 
version 2.0. But I also wanted to introduce you to Stacy, who is a resident at 33 Golf, and she was going to share her perspectives. Um, this is really hard for me. But um, my name is Stacy, Stacy Barnes. And um, I want to thank you for letting me speak on this forum, even though I'm a little very new at this. Um, I'm a 52-year-old native of San Francisco, and I had never been in the shelter system until last February when the building I lived in burned after years of finally um, uh, obtaining permanent housing. The building burned, and um, I was in the shelter and my things were taken, you know, people walking by my bed saying crazy things. And um, just the overall fear of such a big open space with so many people with issues that I can't judge, but I was afraid of. So um, I stayed in a tent with a few friends of mine. It was safer. We could keep watch. We can be supportive of each other. And we were by a church where people were constantly there. And someone said, well, we have a spot for you. And I'm like, oh God, here we go. And they told me about it and I, I couldn't believe it. Um, I had a bed, I had a key to, well, a keypad. And um, a community of people who have, who have been where I've been. And um, every day I look out, it's like I'm almost back home, except I can't stay. Like, it's tomorrow. It could be gone. And um, for the money I've spent just to eat in San Francisco, I'd be willing to give everything I had to stay in this tiny home until I felt ready to move because I'm just not ready. This year has gone by so fast. And I'm just not ready. And I'd be willing to put in Speaker's time whatever. Has elapsed. I'm sorry, my time's up. <clears throat> yes. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank yeah. you. Thanks sorry. for being here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so sorry to cut anybody off, but we are typing right. each speaker at two minutes. Thank you, Elizabeth Funk, and thank you, Stacey Park, for your comments. Uh, are there any other speakers here in the chamber for this item? Seeing none, Mr. Lamb, can you unmute uh, or call her, please? So these are my comments for the budget analyst. The budget analyst and the city attorney have to pay attention to quality of life issues in San Francisco. You, you notice that we don't have many segments of the population either speak at public comment or even come to the chambers. Hundreds of them are dying, some of them middle class, some of them immigrants who take whatever they get. The conditions on our street are horrible, especially when you don't know how to speak English and you have all the cartels and the thugs and the drug dealers doing what they do. And the city attorney and the 
budget analysts maybe should go and spend some time in a tent. Like one of our previous supervisors did in one of the shelters. To really see when it's cold, the inclement weather, how it impacts those who have fallen on bad times. And here, you know, you are talking about things, oh, you know, 80,000 a tent, 65,000 a small cottage, whatever bullshit. It's, it's disgusting. I served my nation. I ran the Presidio. We came to the aid of the city many times by giving y'all housing. The city has failed San Franciscans. The speaker's time has elapsed. Again, I apologize for cutting anybody off, but we are timing each speaker at two minutes. Uh, Mr. Lamb, next speaker, please. Good afternoon. My name is Nina Catalano. I am the Senior Program Officer for San Francisco Housing at Tipping Point Community, um, and I'm calling to express my support for the lease renewal at 33 Goff. First, I want to take a moment to thank Stacy, who spoke about her experience. Um, really appreciate her strength and helping to remind us of the individual stories and the family stories behind each dollar that we discuss on shelter and housing. Um, I also want to thank Supervisor Mandelman for the questions on inflow. We know that preventing homelessness before it starts is the humane um, approach and also the most cost-effective. So the work that the city is doing to build out a robust targeted homelessness prevention system is extremely important. And improving our understanding of inflow is a challenge that's not unique to San Francisco, but is uniquely important to San Francisco. Specific to the 33 Goff lease renewal, um, the site provides space for 70 cabins that function as much needed non-congregate shelter options in San Francisco. We know and we heard today that people experiencing homelessness have diverse experiences and needs, and our system of care has shown that it can flex uh, to change and reflect that. So dignified, safe options for temporary shelter are critical to helping people stabilize and get on a path to permanent housing. Tipping Point helped invest in establishing the tiny cabins model at 33 Goss, and we know in part from that experience and recognize from the efforts of stakeholders how difficult it can be to identify usable sites. We're thrilled that the city sees benefits in this model and is investing in the lease renewal at 33 Goss as part of its shelter and housing expansion. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dina Catalano, for your comments. And Madam Chair, that completes our queue. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Seeing no more public comments, public comment is now closed. So colleagues, I mentioned earlier, you know, just kind of the thought around this, but uh, you're welcome to share sentiments if you're in the Supervisor Safai. I just want to thank Stacy for coming out today. I know that that was hard. I know it's hard to speak in public in general. We do it all the time. But to speak about your own personal experience in a vulnerable way, I know is very, very difficult. So thank you for sharing. Uh, it means a lot. It means a lot for us to hear those experiences firsthand. Uh, I want you to know that our conversation today is not about judging the model itself and the community that you live in. It's about some of the decisions that we make as government. And so my frustration is, and I just go back to the safe parking, we consciously went into that knowing that it was going to be built as affordable housing, that the city had negotiated the purchase uh, along with the nonprofit. So technically the city did not own the land. 
just like in this instance, it's not owned by the developer, but it's a 99-year lease. So it's a land lease, and that's essentially what we have here, the upper yard. And so we are then asked, we're in a tough situation. Because if we say, no, we don't want to continue to pay for this rent, then what happens to this community? We have to relocate it. And that's difficult for someone that's experienced that on a daily basis. And so when I'm saying about policy decisions, policy direction, data-driven decisions, this is not a decision that I would have made up front. And I, and I understand that uh, there was public-private partnership and it's great to get things donated, but ultimately we are now on the hook for millions of dollars of, of lease that I think we could have done a better demonstration project at a different location. And so I, I'm prepared to support this today because I think that it's an important for continuity, important for the community, important for us to really continue to learn lessons. But I'm not happy with being asked to make a decision after the fact, after it's already been laid out. Um, and maybe we made that decision collectively, and we probably did have that, but we were not aware, I think, it, you know, in terms of the long-term nature, that there wouldn't be an opportunity to renegotiate a lease after the time. And so. I would, I would have preferred for this lease to have gone down significantly and not being paid market rent, um, but that's the decision that we're handed today. So anyway, thank you, Chair. Thank you. So my sense is, okay, Supervisor, Vice Chair Mandelman. Um, yeah, I've enjoyed the opportunity to engage with HSH and to continue the ongoing conversation about our different priorities for our shelter and um, shelter system and broader homelessness response, but I don't have any real questions about this particular lease. I think we ought to um, forward it with positive recommendation. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Chair Mendelman. Um, and so seeing that, uh, then I'm going to make the motion to move this item to full board with positive recommendation. Uh, Mr. Clerk, please call the roll. Yes, on that motion to forward this resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation. Uh, Vice Chair Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Uh, Mr. Clerk, please call item number 16. Yes, item number 16 is a resolution retroactively authorizing the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing to execute a standard agreement with the California Business, Consumer Service, and Housing Agency through the California Intra-Agency Council on Homelessness for a total amount not to exceed approximately $10.8 million of encampment resolution funding program grant funds to retroactively accept and expend those funds to support people experiencing unsheltered homelessness for costs incurred upon approval of the standard agreement by BCSH through June 30th, 2025, and authorizing HSH to enter into any additions, amendments, or other modifications to the standard agreement and grant documents that do not materially increase the obligations or liabilities of the city or materially decrease the benefits to the city. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to provide comment for this resolution, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you raised your hand, and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, there will be your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. 
Thank you, Mr. Clark. Today, again, of course, we have Emily Cohen, Direc De Deputy Director from the Department of Homelessness and Support of Housing. In fact, you have a presentation for this item. Thank you very much, Chair Chan. Emily Cohen with the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. I am back before you today with a resolution that would authorize the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing to accept and expend the state's new encampment resolution funding grant. The encampment resolution funding grant is a competitive grant program for services and support for people experiencing unsheltered homelessness in the state. It is administered by the, inter, the state's interagency council on homelessness, and the goal is to provide immediate assistance and, and well-being, well, immediate assistance, well-being, and care for people living unsheltered. And this resolution would authorize HSH to enter to retroactively enter into an agreement with Cal ICH for the amount not to exceed 10.8 million. The we are proposing to spend this funding on direct services and shelter for people coming out of encampments and off of the street. Um, about 9.9 .9 million will be spent on shelter, including 33 Golf, which we just spoke about, but also other non-congregate shelter sites. We will be spending about $830,000 to hire five additional outreach workers and about $65,000 on an ADA accessible vehicle to help transport people from the street to shelter locations. The state requires that we obligate 100% of these funds by June 30th, 2024 and spend the funds down by June 30th, 2025. We received this award notification in late October of 2022, and we were required to sign the standard agreement within 30 days, which is the, why we are here for a retroactive approval. The state signed the agreement on January 25th of this year, and we are now able, you know, upon passage of this, to spend this money down. And so we are very, very much looking forward to putting this program into effect and to continue to fund um, shelter and services for people coming off of the streets. Stop there and take any questions that you might have. Thank you. I think we definitely have questions, <laughs> but uh, we will probably not uh, go into it with this item at this moment because um, I don't see any names on the roster. So Mr. Clerk, please call uh, for public comment. Thank you, Chair Chan. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now. For those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2493-446-0403, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. Please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. And that'll be your cue to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber. And Madam Chair, we have no speakers in the queue. Thank you. Seeing no public comments, public comments is now closed. Vice Chair Mandelman. Um, I, I am curious. So this is new. This is new money, but we're spending it on things we've already been doing, rather than investing in 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 new um, interventions to get unsheltered folks off the streets. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, and um, my colleague Gigi Whitley is also on the line and able to chime in where um, I might fall short. But we opened many of these programs using one-time funding. 
you know, the state has made new investments in homelessness, unprecedented investments, but they are one-time investments year over year. And so we and every other community that's taken advantage of a lot of these resources have set up programs knowing that we are going to have a cliff when it comes to how to keep them going on a long-term basis. So this opportunity for the state grant gives us an ability to continue programs that we would otherwise likely have to close or find another funding source. And through this grant, though, are ensuring that these resources are going to people experiencing unsheltered homelessness and become a tool for the outreach teams as they are out on the street working in encampments every day. We want to make sure our outreach workers are equipped with the resources that they need, and the resource they need most to get somebody off of the street is an attractive shelter bed that folks will say yes to, and that is what we are funding with this grant. Thank you. Okay, so. Let's have one quick question. Is this a normal, like, have they funded this type of work in the past? Is this is it, brand new. So brand new, they're giving you money to go out and get people into shelter. Yes. And then we can talk more about it at our <laughs> hearing. Great. Thank you. All right. So seeing no more questions, and I, so um, I will move this item with a positive recommendation. Um, okay. No. Supervisor Safa, you would like to be added as a co-sponsor of the legislation. And now, Mr. Clerk, please call the roll. Yes, on that motion to forward this uh, resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation, uh, Vice Chair Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three yes. Thank you. The motion passes. Mr. Clerk, is there any other business before us today? Uh, Madam Chair, that concludes our business. All right. The meeting is adjourned.